Welcome to the Rich Roll Podcast, episode 30 with Osher Gunsberg. The Rich Roll Podcast. What's up, everybody? Hey, it's Rich Roll. It's the Rich Roll Podcast. It's episode 30. I can't believe we have done 30 episodes. That's crazy. I started this podcast back in December uh, when my family and I were living on the North Shore of Kauai at this organic farm, and I was sort of feeling the need for a creative outlet uh, for a little bit of a hobby and just did it on a flyer and uh, had no expectations, and I'm just amazed uh, that the show has found an audience. Very, very grateful, uh, and I'm having so much fun doing it. I feel like I learn uh, something new with every guest and every episode, and I hope you do too. Um, And hopefully I'm getting better at doing this. The first couple ones, uh, uh, you know, were admittedly a little bit rough, and I'm certainly no professional broadcaster, um, but hopefully I'm getting better and, uh, and you are continuing to tune in and enjoy the show. Um, What's going on? Well, I'm in New York City. Very, very excited to be in New York. I love New York City. Uh, I used to live here in the late 80s. And um, until last year, it had been many years since I had visited. And uh, I now have had the occasion to come back here a couple times. And I just, I love the vitality of it. I love the energy. Um, It's so fun to be here. uh, Because living in Los Angeles, I live in a very beautiful rural kind of remote part of uh, LA outside of town and um, have the good fortune of being surrounded by a lot of natural beauty. Uh, But I miss the energy uh, of the urban environment. And there's just something uh, about New York. It's irreplaceable. It's the greatest city on earth. uh, So it's always fun and uh, a gift to come back here. I just got back from a 14-mile run in Central Park, two, uh, two full loops plus in, in uh, Central Park, and I just love it. I love being up early, getting out there, and seeing all the people out there biking and running uh, and getting fit. And uh, I don't know, man, just something about this place. It's so great to be here. Why am I here? Well, I am here, well, for two reasons, really. Uh, first of all, I'm speaking on Saturday, uh, May 18th at an event called The Seed, The Seed Experience, uh, which is down in Soho at 82 Mercer Street. It's this super cool, uh, huge loft space. Uh, And I did this event last year. It was really fun. Last year was the first year, and I'm so glad to be coming back this year uh, to speak. I'm speaking Saturday at 5 o'clock, but the event goes on all day Saturday and all day Sunday. And essentially, it's just a smorgasbord of uh, plant-eating goodness, tons of vendors and amazing food, and a battery of amazing speakers. Uh, in addition to me speaking, Brendan Brazier speaking, uh, who, you know, you know him as the Vega founder and, and uh, kind of very well-known uh, plant-based advocate. Tim Van Norden, uh, the raw running guy who was a guest on this podcast uh, a couple months ago, he's going to be there. Um, who else? Uh, I think Kathy Freston speaking. There's a whole bunch of people speaking. They're doing film screenings too and all sorts of events around it. Um, it's super groovy. Uh, so if you are in New York City or in the vicinity, I encourage you to stop by and check it out. Uh, if you want to learn more, you can go to the seedexperience.com 
And uh, again, I'm going to be speaking five o'clock at Saturday for like an hour and, and I'm going to be signing books and I'd love to meet you and uh, sign your book, shake your hand, whatever. So that's uh, one of the reasons I'm here. The other reason I'm in New York uh, is that the paperback version of my book, Finding Ultra, is coming out on the 21st, May 21st. Uh, I'm very excited. I'm very honored that uh, Crown um, decided to issue a paperback uh, version of the book. It's an indication of the strength of how well the book has been selling. And uh, it's a blessing and an honor um, to be able to to uh, to have that. And uh, so I'm here doing some press around that and trying to get the word out. Um, and, you know, in a self-serving way, I suppose, <laughs> I'm trying to sell books, right? Uh, they're like, hey, you know what? You didn't make the New York Times bestseller list with Finding Ultra, but maybe you can make the paperback list with, uh, with the paperback issue of Finding Ultra. So I'm here trying to drum up interest and all that kind of good stuff. And on that note, um, that kind of brings me to today's uh, episode. What we're doing today in kind of honor, sort of honoring the 30th episode and also in anticipation of uh, the paperback release, uh, my publisher suggested, and I thought it was kind of an interesting idea. Uh, they said, uh, hey, you know what? Um, you know, you've interviewed all these amazing people. Uh, why don't you have somebody interview you? And I kind of said, well, you know, I do these interviews all the time. I think people are sick of hearing what I have to say. I feel like I'm constantly repeating myself. And they said, well, what if you had a friend of yours do it and they kind of asked you the stuff that, that you know you don't usually get asked or they kind of go beyond the typical interview questions that you get. Uh, yeah, maybe there's something interesting there. I don't know. Um, but I thought about it and I thought it could be cool. I think it all depends on getting the right person to do it. And uh, today I definitely uh, found the right guy to do it. Uh, my friend Osher Gunsberg uh, interviews me and we talk for almost two hours. Uh, and it was a great opportunity to kind of um, get into some stuff in a deeper way and kind of go beyond the typical questions that I get like, hey, you know, how do, where do you get your protein? And, and, you know, what do you think about when you're running that far or whatever? And, you know, kind of the standard five or six questions that I, that I typically get. And uh, Osher uh, is a total pro. I mean, this guy, I, I, I only met him recently, but we've become fast friends. Uh, he's an Aussie transplant. And for those of you who are tuning in from down under, you probably know him as Andrew G. He was the host of uh, Australia's version of American Idol. So I think they call it Australian Idol or just Idol. I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, he's a professional TV personality and host and a radio host and a journalist, kind of an on-air guy who's very, very good at what he does. He's incredibly dynamic and fun and energetic and inquisitive. Uh, and we had a great time uh, talking and he really, you know, he pushed me and we probed into some cool stuff. So I hope you enjoy the interview uh, as much as um, I enjoy doing it with Osher. Uh, we've been out running in addition to kind of what he does professionally. You know, he's also a long-term vegan plant-based guy. He's been eating plant-based diet for like 10 years. Uh, he's gotten into running and marathon running and, uh, he's training for his first ultra. He's going to do the bulldog 50 K, which is in Malibu Creek state park, down, uh, Malibu Creek state park down the street from where I live. 
And, uh, and so, you know, we have lots of uh, commonalities and common interests in addition to <laughs> bearing a kind of bizarre uh, semblance of looking like each other. If you follow me on Instagram, you might have seen the picture that I posted the other day. Uh, of Asher and I. We're both wearing the same glasses and the same white V-neck t-shirt with a little bit of scruff and the same haircut. And <laughs> we look a little bit too much alike in that photo. I thought it was pretty funny. Uh, if you haven't seen it, just go to my Instagram at, at Rich Roll and check it out. So uh, today it's all about the paperback. Um, I'm just trying to get the word out. So if you've enjoyed Finding Ultra, uh, please spread the word. Father's Day is coming up, might make a good Father's Day gift. And now that the paperback is coming out, it's cheap too. So if you're interested in doing that, what do you do? Well, I would suggest that uh, you uh, (laughs) use the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com. If you go to richroll.com and click on the podcast page on the right-hand side, there's an Amazon banner ad. Uh, If you're going to buy something on Amazon, like your Father's Day paperback version of Finding Ultra, just click the banner ad. It'll take you to Amazon, buy whatever you're going to buy. It's not going to cost you anything extra, but Amazon throws us a few pennies and uh, it helps keep the podcast going. And I really appreciate all the people that have been using the banner ad. It's amazing uh, to kind of uh, check the account once in a while and go, wow, there's a lot of people that are supporting the show by making their purchases using that, that, uh, that click through and um, that just, it's amazing. It, it feels really good uh, and it makes me feel better and better about doing the show that people would go out of their way to do that. And also beyond that, we have a donate button um, for people that are feeling inclined to go the extra step and throw us a few dollars directly. Uh, you can do that. And we've gotten a lot of donations from people, which, you know, I was even like dubious about putting that up to begin with. Like, I'm going to ask for people, ask people for money. Like, you know, this is free. It will always be free. You don't want to donate. You'll always get it for free. Uh, but for people that feel like, uh, going, uh, going, going out and throwing us a few bucks, Hey man, that's great. You know, we have expenses and, uh, that's really helping cover the cost of doing this. And it takes me a lot of time. You know, it's, I wish I could do this every day or at least three times a week, but for every show, it takes me about three or four hours to post produce it and get it up after I've done the interview. And, um, it's work, you know, it's definitely work and it's, it's time that I could be spending training or, or doing other work or spending time with my kids and my family, but I believe in it. And, uh, we are at almost half a million downloads actually, uh, by the time this episode goes up, we might even cross it, which is incredible. So thank you everybody, uh, that's tuned, that has been tuning in and subscribing. Uh, if you've been enjoying it, spread the word, tell a friend, that's all it's free. It will always be free, like I said. Um, and uh, hey, you know, leave a comment on the iTunes uh, on the iTunes page for the show. We've gotten a lot of great comments there. And again, uh, another reason to thank all of you. You guys are making it happen. You're putting wind in my sails and uh, giving me the resolve to keep this going. And we've got a lot of things uh, coming up for the show that are exciting. I'm looking at uh, bringing on a producer and looking for some studio space so I can kind of take this to the next uh, level professionally 
and institute some systems and get some people to help me. And if I can do that, then I can probably put up more episodes uh, because I, I won't be shouldering the burden of actually doing every single thing myself, which is what I've been doing so far. So anyway, that's it. Um, Osher Gunsberg, we sit down, we talk two hours. It's pretty epic. He's a great guy. If you want to know more about Osher, uh, you can follow him on Twitter at, at Osher Gunsberg, O-S-H-E-R Gunsberg, G-U-N-S-B-E-R-G. Uh, I'm going to have him back on the podcast and interview him because he's up to some pretty cool stuff too. Uh, with his advocacy work. He's getting involved in uh, the Aboriginal Running uh, Marathon Project, which is pretty neat, working with the indigenous people in Australia. And I want him to come on and talk about that. And we can talk plant-based eating. We can talk running and ultra running and all of that. But this time, he's kind of turning the, uh, the focus on me and uh, peeling back the layers. And I'm going to do this sort of um, paperback release uh, interview of me in two installments this is going to be oshers interviewing me and then uh and then uh in a couple days i'm going to upload part two which is uh mishka shibali interviewing me and mishka was a guest on the show last time i was in new york so what was that i don't know a month or six weeks ago it was a really popular episode we had a really intense conversation and i thought that he would be a good guy uh, to also interview me because he can get into some of the other kind of uh, subject areas that I touch on in the book that he can relate to personally, like the recovery story and all of that. So I sat down with Mishka last night when I got into New York and we had another <laughs> hour and a half uh, really intense conversation, but this time him asking me the questions and I'm going to upload that as part two of this kind of paperback release thing. So again, Finding Ultra, the paperback comes out 521. Get it for Father's Day. Tell a friend. Get the word out. Help me spread the word. Maybe we can make the New York Times bestseller list. If we do, it'll be because of you guys and you guys only. So thank you, thank you, thank you. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia. And he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. 
Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. And without further ado, let's get into it. Osher Gunsberg interviewing me. Let's have it. Thank you for having me, Rich. It's amazing to be here in your home. Yeah. It's a beautiful home up here in the in the wilds. Yeah, thanks. Um, we love it. It's part of LA that no one thinks is LA, but it's LA. It is. Um, the mountains. I lived. I actually lived in LA for many years before I even knew this area existed. It's quite the gem and still pretty undeveloped. You know, it's and close enough to town where you can drive in. Um, but when you're here, you feel like you're on vacation. You're, you're the reason I know this place exists because when I first met you and I said, oh, you know, let's go for a run. You said, yeah, come out, come out here and we'll go running through that park down the street. I'd never been out here. I've driven through here to get to Malibu mm-hmm. when I lived in the valley to go surfing and stuff, but just I just banged straight past, never right. even looked to either side. No, you, yeah, you drive right past Malibu Creek State Park. You have yeah. no idea what's in there. We no. go in there running the other day and you're like, the, you're thinking, why isn't everybody up here? That's <laughs> so magical and amazing. It's, if you're coming to Los Angeles um, – it's worth. It's absolutely worth the day trip out here to go for a bit of a walk. It's true, true wilderness. Yeah, out here, which is amazing in any kind of right. civilized world or civilized society to find actual wilderness still around. It's it's easy to throw barbs at L.A. You know, and make fun of it. Mm. And you know, most people, like including myself, who like I just said, who lived here for a long time before I knew this existed. I mean, your experience of L.A. is flying into LAX, which is like you know the the world's worst airport, descending and, through the airborne mud cloud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then, you know, renting your car, getting in your car and driving on Lincoln Boulevard or Sepulveda and Pico Boulevard and going, yeah, this is lousy. I used to tell people, you know? I used to tell people, what's LA like? I'm like, you know, in Australia, when you drive away from the airport and you leave the part of the city that looks like, oh yeah, this is near the airport. And then you arrive where you're going, it looks totally different. LA never changes. It all looks like it's, <laughs> it's by a, the airport. It's basically a gradual <laughs> extension of LAX, yeah, right? Yeah. I'm like, I've been traveling a lot um, more than, you know, I have in many years and been in a lot of airports over the last year. And it's just, it's always shocking to me how poorly represented Los Angeles is with its airport. I'm like, what are we in? Like, you know, I mean, literally you feel like you're, you know, in some sub-Saharan country or something. (laughs) It's pretty bad. It's not that bad. Well, and it's always under construction. So you think like, you know, the improvements are right around the corner, but Mm -hmm. you know, I've lived here for, I don't know, 15, 16 years and it it doesn't seem to have changed too much. Never, ever. But But, uh, it's good that you're flying so much because you're putting the word out about the book, aren't you? I'm trying. I'm trying. Yeah. Good man. Which is why you asked me here today. I like that how you popped the question. You waited till we were at about, I don't know, two and a half thousand feet up above sea level, <laughs> my heart's about to blow out of my chest. Hey, man, I've got to do this thing, and my publisher wants me to get interviewed, man. It was not a premeditated thing. It just <laughs> occurred to me, because my publisher said, you know, why don't you find 
somebody to interview you for the podcast. And I was like, eh, that seems kind of, you know, self-aggrandizing or whatever, but you know, not that I'm against being so <laughs> self-promotional. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you're, you know, you're the, it just occurred to me when we were running, I was like, Oh, you know, you're the perfect guy to do it. You know, we're both plant-based and running ultra running. You're training for an ultra right now. You're wearing similar glasses and have a similar hairdo, and you're a professional radio and television guy. I mean, why didn't I think of that sooner? Well, I mean, it's, honestly, mate, it's an absolute <laughs> it's an absolute honor that you even asked me. I was no. I was so blown away that you even asked me. And um, you say, yeah, I have to be today or tomorrow. I know, last well, minute. I've, you know, I've always do my homework as you can see i've done a lot of homework. i know i'm impressed you've got a notebook out we don't need yeah, to do it we man, keep it I've, loose and fast here you know we that's can, okay we can i you know we have a i learned a very important lesson and i was on a i was on a snowboarding adventure with my youngest brother in japan and um we met an australian guy called saul he was in his late 60s and he told us on the back of one of those transfer buses he goes always remember the six p's what are the six p's saul prior preparation prevents piss poor performance I like that. That's definitely going in the show notes for this episode. And then there's the five Ds. What's that? Don't dither or delay, decide or delegate. I like that. Yeah. And he told, and both of us just like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> it's either, it's, it's good, but it's also a little cheesy too. It's sort of like what you would hear at some self-improvement. Well, that's what he said. He's like, he said, boys, that's the first year of business school right there. Don't even worry yeah. about it. It's, I've taken care of you. You're fine. So. And he's right. So, but I always, I always, people used to ask me if I would get nervous before I interviewed this person or that person. I was, I'd never get nervous because I always prepare. So, I always prepare. Do your homework. I like yeah, that. absolutely. So, um, you're, well, first of all, you're talking about, uh, you know, oh, thanks for asking me to do this. It's an honor or whatever. But you just got back from Vegas interviewing the guys from Hangover 3. Oh, look, so that doesn't this is, matter. This is, a, this is a, quite the consolation prize. After I disagree. That. That's, I mean, that's, what is that, what's that like? That's you know, you interview it's, Zach. And, my friend Alicia says it's, um, it's speed dating with cameras. Yeah. Yeah. It's, How long are those interviews? God. We have now already spoken the length of three of them. Right. Yeah, they're short. I mean, do you try to bring something different to that? As much as you can. Spice it up a little bit. As much as you can. You got to try. They must just be glassy eyed and you're like, please just just get through this. Yep. Every (laughs) time you see, and we talk to. Uh, and we talked to Owen Wilson about his latest film and there's Owen going, yeah, you know, la, la, la. And there's a, like a generic kind of person nodding at the answer to the question. That's, right. I'm the guy. You're the guy that with the poster nodding. and there's a poster of the movie exactly. behind you. That's exactly right. And this is the problem with media and this is why podcasts are so great. You can right? smash it out, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, and I think people are hungry for that. You know, they're just, yeah. t- they're t- so, it's, I mean, those shows, Entertainment Tonight, all the evening shows, you know, the late night talk shows and all of that are are hugely popular. But like, is anybody ever really satisfied with what anybody's, you know, as you go on, hey, tell me about your vacation. It serves you know? a purpose though. All that stuff serves a purpose. If it didn't, Do you it think people are aware uh, that the only reason those celebrities go on those shows though is when they have a movie coming out? I mean, I think a lot of people, but I think a lot of people aren't even completely aware of that. Um. Look, I've, I mean, I've what, we, in, we're not doing anything that different than that. Either. I've worked in I've worked in media a long time. It's my twentieth, twenty first year or something in broadcasting, and it people just want to. At the end of the day, they want to sit down and escape from their terrible boss or the kid that's annoying them, and mm-hmm. and go. Oh, Angelina Jolie had her boobs done again. Hey, honey, did you hear that? And then they get to talk about something that isn't right. the phone bill for a while. Yeah, and that's, I get that, man. You know, you know, and that's it. I'm that's, not above that. That's, that's what it's there you for. Um, but you asked me because you want me to interview you. Yeah, well, would, we could do whatever. All right, but I, because <laughs> here's the thing. 
I've read your book. I know you have listened to a bunch of your podcasts, not all of them. So if I cover anything that you've already covered, please all right. please let me know. I think I've probably caught about 60 to 70% of them, maybe more. I've missed a, I've missed a few. That's pretty loyal. But I pretty much go, oh, you're in there. You get updated. I go, oh, Richard's yeah. got another one. I live in Venice. I sit in my car a lot. I drive right. a lot. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Right, right. <laughs> That's the other thing. You know, I just, I, I don't listen to, I've got satellite radio in my car. I don't even listen to it anymore. I do too. I just listen to podcasts. It's like, you just program your own. I, yeah. I have literally like, you know, 45 hours worth of content always on hand. We were talking like, about why this, would I turn the radio on? And I've, exactly. And his, I've had a career in radio since 1994. And I've just, only just stopped five months ago. And like, how the hell can a radio station compete with curated content that someone has put designed exactly for themselves, their own playlist of mm-hmm. things that exactly they are interested in and want to hear in the palm of their hand? And everybody has a mobile device. So I, I'm actually shocked that, that podcasting isn't more, I mean, it's growing, obviously, but isn't more popular than it is. You I wait. mean, there's a lot of people that are like, what? You know, like, you not, you know. The way it streams over the air uh, right now, like Spotify, it streams, mm-hmm. uh, you know, MP3 over the air. Or if you're on an unlimited data plan here in the States, you can get the, your podcasts over right. the air. Mm-hmm. That'll be a widget in your dashboard before long. Yeah. And it's it won't be the be. iTunes store. It'll be a widget, like a, an app on your dashboard. You just touch that screen and uh, there's a rich roll podcast. It's updated again when you want to listen to it. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the uh, iTunes or there's a podcasting app for the iPhone now that, that does that. Like I used to have to download them on my desktop and then mm-hmm. sync my phone and make sure that they were all up, updated. But now they just stream through that, that app on right. my iPhone. So, Well, like you said, you, interv- you asked me to interview you because you got the, the paperback coming out. Congratulations, mm-hmm. that's a big step. Yeah, thank you. Um, and so I put together a bunch of questions because like, I've read your book and you know, I'm, uh, you're a very interesting man. You cover a lot in your book and- I guess the, the first question that I really want to ask you is, um, where do you get your protein from? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that we have a professional in the house. Dude. <laughs> yeah, and you're just second, you second right out of the gate with the question that I never get asked. Follow up. Um, but don't you miss bacon? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, what's really funny about that is um, today uh, – uh, Rip Esselstyn, who wrote The Engine 2 Diet, just came out with a brand new book called My Beef with Meat. Came out yesterday. And so he's in New York right now doing the talk show circuit. Mm-hmm. And he was on one of those morning shows today, like CBS This Morning yeah, or whatever yeah. that. And, uh, and, and it, it was, uh, and uh, the person who does his Twitter tweeted it. So it's like, oh, I got to see this. And, you know, he's sitting there and it's Charlie Rose and whoever all the other hosts are on that show. And he's there to talk about his new book. First question, where do you get your protein? You know, oh, but he, he was Johnny on the spot with it. It's like, he's been doing this forever. And yeah. still, it's the first question everybody Which wants is the biggest, know. and that's, that's what is really interesting about your story and, and why I think so many people are drawn to you. And when I tell people, I know this guy, he does this, they go, he did what? On plants? When I tell them about your uh, finishing Ultraman mm-hmm. twice. Not even just competing it, but finishing the damn thing. You know um, that really blows all that out of the water. And your the fact that you are who you are and you are able to talk, you know, intelligently um, also helps in that. Sometimes um, that people kind of the the stereotype of the, the the skinny weak vegan goes out of the way. So I guess the the question, the first question that I really actually did want to ask you. Sorry, is, um, um, I've. Yeah, we're here at your, your home, your beautiful home, and um, 
I've just been for the last week. I've had a mate stay on my couch out in Venice, and he's Texan. And he's calls right. himself. He's a gentleman rancher. Rancher, sorry, I put the R on the end. Um, and I've been feeding him green smoothies every morning. But we, he, I took him grocery shopping, and he asked me the question: um, Do you think it's more expensive to eat the way you eat, being vegan? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I know you like to say plant based. I appreciate that. Um, so, do you think it's cheaper to eat um, a regular American meat and potatoes diet versus a plant based diet? And I'm a single guy living by myself. You're a father with a mm-hmm. wife and four children, right? So, I guess my first—that's my first question—is like that's a concern for a lot of people. I guess, yeah, would be it like, is. It's a valid. You- it's a valid concern. Yeah. And uh, the I guess the the quick answer is. It can be a lot more expensive mm-hmm. to eat plant-based, uh, so you have to be a little bit more judicious and careful, and and do a little bit more homework about where you're sourcing your foods. If you're going to go to Whole Foods and try to buy everything that you need for your kitchen at Whole Foods, it's going to be a hell of a lot more expensive than going to Taco Bell every day. But just a pit, like Whole Foods is a it's a chain of stores. It's like a supermarket mm-hmm. that stocks like organic and you know grown in in beds of organic grass-fed horse manure and right it's very high end and it's very uh, uh, overpriced often the joke is it's called a whole paycheck that's what you call it here um and uh and so yeah if you're gonna if you're gonna be trying to buy all your foods there it is gonna be a lot more expensive but um there are many many ways of circumventing that and we've actually found that uh, it ends up being about the same, if not cheaper, if you're just a little bit more um, aware of what you're doing. So, for example, in the United States, there's a chain of grocery stores called Trader Joe's. So we get a lot of our stuff there. Um, not everything, like the produce isn't always so good there, but there's a lot of staples that we can get there that are, it's it's pretty darn cheap. And when you, say, when you say staples, because people always ask me, I was like, what do you, what do you eat? Because they, right. it's so beyond their paradigm of I get up in the morning, I have cereal and I put milk in it. And then if I'm hungry in between, I make toast. And then I have a burger or, 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 right. or something for lunch, you know. So, so in terms of staples, what we what eat, mean? well, well uh, you know, basically lots of produce, um, fresh vegetables, fresh fruit, uh, whole grains, legumes, seeds, and nuts. And, you know, those are, that's, you know, basically all you're exempting is a lot of processed crap that everybody knows is bad for them. Yeah. And then the meat and dairy products, right? And the meat products can be quite expensive, right? So you're eliminating those right off the top. So you're not buying ribeyes and all sorts of things that can jack up, um, you know, you know, the cash register. So, uh, <clears throat> and there are ways of getting produce relatively cheaply, right? Like Trader Joe's doesn't always have this, the best produce, but Lots of farmers markets have co-op prog- programs where you can get stuff pretty cheaply. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of little markets peppered around Los Angeles. Like there's one called Vallarta in the Deep Valley. You can go there. I mean, literally, you can fill your entire uh, shopping cart for like 25 bucks. We do. We do live in a unique part of the world, right? And not everybody massive. has that. No, not you know? everybody. So, has and I'm that. I'm empathetic to that. I'm not. I'm not. You know. I'm not unaware that um, we're quite lucky, lucky living where we live. But um, a lot of st- when you say staples, like for example, brown rice or black beans and kidney beans. I mean, you can buy these things in bulk, incredibly cheaply, and when they they can provide the base of a million different dishes that you make. So you know, maybe once or twice a week. My wife and I, and when I say that, I mean my wife, we'll cook up like, you know, uh, a lot of black beans and a lot of rice, and then we store it. You know, we can make 
soups out of that. We can make um, stews out of that. We can make veggie burritos and we always have plenty of food on tap. And literally you can buy a giant pound, you know, bag of rice or beans for like pennies almost. Right. So when that's providing kind of the base of a lot of your dishes, it becomes pretty inexpensive, really. I mean, if you're, if you're going to buy organic produce at Whole Foods and you're going to juice it all, where you're going through a ridiculous amount of produce, like that's going to add up fast. So it's just about making smart choices and dialing it in. But in terms of variety and staples, like there's more available than you might imagine and it doesn't have to be bland or boring by so, any I, I guess the, the the follow-up question that i had to that was i started to wonder this might be you know we might have to get the freakonomics guys in uh-huh. but if you calculated over the course of your life until like as, as as a man in in your maybe 60s how much money you spend on your groceries every week and then Put on top of that the angioplasty and the stent that you got put in. Of course. Which rates from – I looked at it today because I knew I was coming to see you, so I researched it. It's like in, in America, it's anywhere between $25,000 to $100,000 right. to get that stent put in. Right. For, and that just and that's just normal, much traced normal, back to poor diet. And that's normal operating procedure yeah. for a middle-aged guy these yeah. days, unfortunately. So, like, if you could save yourself that – Mm-hmm. Like how, I wonder how much. I wonder which is cheaper. Oh, like, I mean, like that's the other thing. Like, what's cheaper is getting the stent put in when you're in your 60s, or spending a little more money on healthier food for your life, and then having that money to go and buy your kids a college education. Right. Exactly. I mean, the sky's the limit with healthcare costs the way they are right now, and things that aren't covered by insurance, and how high the deductibles are. Um, you know, we're getting sicker and sicker and sicker and more obese and more congenital disease and heart rate, you know, heart, or heart disease rates are through the I mean, it's ridiculous, right? Um, so the Freakonomics argument is very powerful. And if you balance all of that out, you're definitely going to save money eating a plant-based diet. The problem with that for a lot of people is that's not inspiring or motivating. You know what now. I mean? Yeah, it's not yeah. now. And it's like, well, I want to go to in and out right now. Like yeah. I'll worry about the stent later. You know, it's like people don't, that's not how people are wired. I'm not really wired like that. I mean, in my experience, pain is the true motivator to get people to change. And that's what made me change because I was in enough pain where I was willing to roll up my sleeves and get uncomfortable and do something that at the time I didn't necessarily want to do or believe that it would really impact my life that much. And it's been an amazing journey, but, you know, I often ask myself, well, you know, what would you have just done this anyway? If somebody said, Hey, you know, you're going to have a lot of healthcare costs coming up, you know, you better, you better straighten out. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's hard, you know? Yeah. Well, as humans, we're not, we're just not, we're not, we're not, no, psychologically, we're not wired that way. Um, so if you're Stephen, if Stephen Dubner's listening, um, just go out and do that, please. Um, now I've, I got here early and I got to watch your kids, um, both your, you've got four children, mm-hmm. um, and I watched both of your daughters make their afternoon snacks. Now anyone with kids, I'm, I don't have any kids myself, but all my mates have got kids, and getting any kind of vegetable into your child should be an Olympic sport. <laughs> um, what is it like? You know, because that just even like just explaining what I just saw these two girls make for themselves. What did they make? I'm afraid to ask. Oh, one of them made herself the most amazing burger. She made it in the oven. The uh-huh. older one, right, Mathis. She made herself a burger in the oven with a, a roast. She roasted a mushroom. Oh, like a portobello burger, amazing yeah. with <laughs> lettuce and tomato, and she roasted a bun and uh-huh. like versus coming home, opening a pop tart, throwing it in the toaster, right. Like parents listening to this would probably be like, if only I could get my kids to do that. Mm-hmm. Like, 
is that is that because that's just all they've known? And when they go to their friends' houses, what's the pressure like for your kids? Because you raise your kids vegan as well. We, yeah, I mean, to say we raise them vegan is a little bit. Sorry, I'm, I've got to stop saying yeah, vegan. It's to say well, you no, no, raise no. your kids like you on a plant based diet. Well, no, but even that is slightly inaccurate yeah. because it's been a kind of an evolving thing, you know. And uh, first of all, I'm really glad that Mathis made a port- her own portobello it burger. Made me she's really hungry. Rich. She's not. She's nine, so that's pretty cool. And I know, you know, my 18-year-old Tyler comes it down in the morning and makes his kale smoothie on his own accord. And and it's kind of amazing. You know, I take it for granted now and it's just normal, but it is amazing. And it didn't happen overnight. I mean, you know, I've been doing this for six years. And prior to that, it was, you know, it was whatever, right? Um, but I think the most important thing from a parenting perspective, uh, unfortunately, is you got to walk your walk. You know, you can't expect your kids to make a healthy choice um, if you're not making that choice as well. And kids are smart. Like if you're sneaking off and and waking up in the middle of the night to go eat ice cream, they know, they know what's up, you know? So um, you have to do it yourself and lead by example. And, you know, several years later, they may or may not take a tip from that. But what we've done is, um, you know, the reason I kind of like, I didn't cringe, but I was like, I had a reaction to you saying, you know, you're raising your kids plant-based because we're not raising them with any agenda, really. We're just like, hey, we're filling our house with healthy foods and come to the, come to the market with us and help us pick them out. And we involve them. You know, we, invo- we treat them like grownups, I guess, and, and to some degree with respect to this and give them respect and say, here's why we're getting these foods. Help us get this. What kind of this would you like? You know, and we, we set certain parameters around that, but we they're participating, you know, and then we bring it home. They help us put it away. They help us decide what we're going to make for dinner. And then, you know, Julie likes to play around and come up with new recipes. So she'll have Mathis or Tyler or Trevor like, Hey, you know, what if we put this in here? I wonder how that would taste. And, and so they develop an emotional attachment to where their food is coming from, how it's prepared and what they're eating. And, you know, they've seen the changes that have happened with me They've seen, you know, what's happened with their mom, like really kind of taking on this mantle of, of really learning how to be a, a vegan chef, mm-hmm. which she's not trained to do, but she's really kind of discovered and fallen in love with and, um, and not setting any rules around it, you know? So, <clears throat> you know, if Mathis, the, the nine-year-old who went and made the Portobello burger, she goes out to her friend's house or a birthday party and they have cake or pizza, she's welcome to eat that. And I'm not going to judge her or have any problem with that. The point is, you know, we try to educate so that they can make the best, most informed decision for themselves. And, and by not creating a rule around it, then you remove that that thing to rebel against. So there's no emotional energy around the choice. You know what I mean? It's just like, hey, you know, we're trying to do the right thing, do the best you can. We're humans. Nobody's going to be perfect around it. And I think when parents crack down on kids, that creates kind of a you know an fu mentality when they get older. And what about because one of my one of my best mates, uh, Simone, down in Australia, she, she has three daughters, and uh, she went and she became a, a vegan nutritionist. She raises her kids vegan, and I don't, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure there'd be the same thing here in in America. In that, um, other parents are you know really awesome, and having kids is great because you just get all these heaps of free advice from other people about <laughs> how to do it. <laughs> So unsolicited. What, what? Yeah. What are other parents' reactions? Oh, sure. Let me tell you. Yeah, yeah. You shouldn't. Your kid has to be eating cheese. They're yeah. gonna have their bones are gonna break the first time they catch a football. Like, do other parents give you the stinky eye, or 
I mean, or do you not mix in those circles or what's other parents' reactions when they see? Because it's far enough, like, everyone's, like, hear the story, like, oh, yeah, my 14-year-old, she started listening to punk music and stopped eating meat. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. But a younger kid, like a kid kid, so right. most kids are, the youngest one's 11 weeks and there's one, I think, six, seven and the other one's about four, I think. Um, you know, if when you've got a kid like that. And right. It's a saying, big responsibility and every parent wants to make sure they're doing best by their child and making the right decision. Only, and only, only to happily tell another parent what they're doing wrong. Of course. And, and, uh, and there's a fear-based program around that too, because it's sort of like, all right, well, I know if I kind of feed them what everyone else is feeding them, that things will be probably, uh, will be okay. Right. But if I'm going to go outside the norm and do this thing that, that, uh, you know, is potentially dicey, is that right? And of course you're going to, you're going to get judgment for that. Um, you know, now, you know, we don't really get it to our face, really. You know, if people are talking behind our back, you know, that's conceivable. I'm sure that's going on. Yeah. Um, I'm not aware of it. Uh, all I know is that my kids are healthy and happy and seem to be doing fine. And, and you know, as a parent, we, had, we need to make sure they're getting their B12 and their vitamin D and all of that. And we do that. But other than that, um, you know, they're all growing and, you know, developing mentally and physically and it, it, it's all fine. But I think the thing is... Um, but you're also brings, really, you're really careful about it. You don't just feed them salad. I mean, I used to, when no, I did, no, no. I did um, Idol in Australia. I was the host of the Australian mm-hmm. version of Idol, um, which is called Australian Idol. It's called American Idol here. It's called Malaysian Idol there. Right. Um, and people knew it. I, I, I was vegan and, and they would come up to me and go, you, I can't even tell you how many times it happened, Rich, when people would be like, oh yeah, I used to be vegan and then my hair fell out. Or I was vegan and then one of my kidneys failed. Right. Oh, yeah, because you didn't, you weren't smart. You didn't right. eat right. You can't just eat salad. You can you can be unhealthy on a vegan <laughs> yeah. diet just to you say I'm eating down. a vegan diet. First of all, I don't even know what that means. That can mean many many things. You know, it can mean something that's very healthy. It can mean something that's very unhealthy. Uh, so just to say that, um, I don't have enough information. And when you know when people say things like that to me, you know, my question is, well, let's let me find out what exactly you were eating. You know, and then and we'll figure out what went what went wrong. I mean. You could be a, I mean, now more than ever, you can be a crazy junk food g- vegan with all the, you know, processed kind of stuff they have that's non-dairy and non-animal and all the fake meats and cheeses and all of that. I mean, you know, if you go eat, I love veggie grill, but if you go there every day and eat the buffalo wings with the, with the non-dairy ranch sauce, like that's not, you're not going to be doing too good <laughs> after a while, I think. But they taste so good. They do. And they're... <laughs> And so people say to me, like, do you cheat? You know, do you cheat on your vegan diet? And I was like, I don't cheat. But if I, you know, like, I consider having the buffalo wings at Veggie Grill kind of cheating, you know, because that's not a, a whole food plant-based yeah. diet. That's like a processed vegan food. Uh-huh. And you can trick yourself into thinking, well, it's vegan. It's great, you know. So it's no, what's the problem? Um, and I think that's where people get into trouble because it's a very, you know, you can eat, it's about nutrition, nutrient density. You know, so you're uh-huh. eating foods that are very nutrient poor, um, but calorie high, regardless of whether they have dairy or animal products in yeah. them, you know, you're not going to be heading in a good direction. I have one more question about food and then and I want to move on. Um, but there was one thing in your book that really completely blew my mind about the microbes in your gut uh-huh. driving the cravings. These are the things that aren't you. These are the bacteria that live inside you that are, right. that are not you. They're the little individual organisms that we play host to. Right drive our food cravings and that completely freaked me out because i know you've said it and i'm grateful you credit me every time but yeah i had a window diet for a long time whereas if i could drive up to the window i would eat food out of it and 
it was amazing. It would be 90 minutes to two hours after eating it that I would be searching the side of the road for another Kentucky mm-hmm. or a Burger King or whatever. And it was right. horrendous. I was 21 or 22. I didn't know any better. But Your impulses have been hijacked. But now all I want is kale. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Because you have a different microbial ecology So in this your gut. is the thing. Like People go, I would be vegan, but I, I can't give up my cheese. Right. I, I love my dairy. Like, if that's just a ca- is that just a case of changing? The- I think there's two things going on with that. First of all, it's, it's kind of a, the first part of that for me is, is an interesting kind of spiritual rabbit hole because when you say like, I just can't give up my cheese, like, well, what is that? You know, what are you saying? Well, what you're doing is you're telling a story and you're affirming that story by repeating it. And by repeating it enough, it becomes true. This is the story that you've created for yourself. And in some respect, there's an identity formed around that. And that becomes cemented, even if it has no bearing in reality. So you have the power to change that story if you want. That doesn't have to be your story. Um, You can start to affirm something else and watch your life move in a different direction. Uh, The second part of it is the microbial thing. And that's like, it's a crazy, crazy story. And and, uh, I started to learn about this. I talk about it in the book. Um, My buddy... Compton Rom, who I've, he, he recently moved to Salt Lake, but I've got to have this guy in the podcast because he's just a mind blower. Like he knows so much. He's a, he's a, he's a PhD in microbiology and was a research doctor for a long time. Uh, and he started a, a, a holistic nutrition company called Ascended Health. He moved to Salt, he moved to Salt Lake to kind of start, you know, building it. Um, and he used to live down the street. And when I started training for Ultramans, like he was a friend, he's like, he, he wanted to use me as like his, his guinea pig, like, cause he was trying all these crazy potions. He's like, I want you to drink this and see how it makes you feel and perform. And I go over to his house, um, just down the way and I go into his kitchen and, uh, and it looked like I'd walk in and there are just test tubes all over the place on the Island in the kitchen. I was like, this looks like a meth lab in here. Like, what are you doing? You know? And he'd have crazy green potions boiling on the, it's whole food. The Richard, it's I know. Whole food. And he's like, Oh, it's awesome. I just came up with this new resveratrol turmeric, you know, potion. You got to try this. And, and, uh, and he started experimenting with, um, I'll get to your answering your That's question, but this is a funny story. So he started experimenting with using lasers to kind of repair muscle damage, you know, like the, the sort of lead, red lasers that you see, um, you know, for pointers and things like that. So he became very interested in that. And somehow he found a way to order like a dozen or two dozen of these super high powered lasers that were manufactured by a defense contractor to be used as, um, on, uh, on sniper rifles as like the scope, you know, where, you know, the red, you see in the yeah, movie, like the, the red, red dot dots. or whatever. He's like, he, and he got him shipped it to his house and he's like, check it out. And he would like beam it up on a cloudy night and you could, it, it would go all the way up to the cloud. Like he's like, it has like a five kilometer range on it or some crazy distance. Like they were so powerful. And he's like, but they're awesome. You beam them on you. Like if your knee is hurting, you kind of use it on your knee and it helps, um, it's like it creates like a, a, an immune system response that helps you uh, sort of repair your body more quickly. And so he's experimenting with all these things. And I'm like, all right, dude, you realize like you're on some crazy homeland security list right now. Like you've ordered over the internet like these 
high powered, like, you know, lasers that are used for sniper rifles. <laughs> you're going to get a knock on the door and yeah. these feds are going to walk in and they're going to see all this shit on in your kitchen. Like, like you're doing it. You're going to, you're headed for Guantanamo, man. Yeah, man. We're never going to see you again. But anyway, he, he, uh, so he knows everything there is to know about microbes. And he was the first one who started to, to kind of educate me about mm-hmm. this. And he's convinced and I believe in him because I know his background that, uh, that microbes, you know, basically dictate our health and you're seeing more and more research coming out all the time. Like there was the recent thing about, um, the effect of, of meat on, I think it was heart disease. A bunch of research studies came out recently. Um, and it had to do with, uh, the gut bacteria that are the result of eating those kind of animal products that was having the deleterious effects on health. Um, so, and I think there's a book that just came out too. I can't remember it right now, but if I, I'll, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, um, about this relationship between your microbial ecology and your gut and your, and your wellness. And essentially, um, it's, it's a short section in the book, but I kind of describe it as, um, you know, we think we're sentient beings, right? That we have power over our thoughts, um, we're made up of cells and those cells make up our organs and our systems and, and ultimately who we are. But really, uh, we're more microbe than human. Like our, we have 10 times the number of microbial, like s- sort of single celled entities in our gut alone compared to all of our cells, like something like a trillion, you know, micro- wow. microbes in our, in our gut. And there's evidence to suggest that, that the nature, that these microbes somehow in some totally bizarre way um, can impact our nervous system in a way that, that triggers our cravings. Uh, so for example, you eat McDonald's food and there's that food is, has a certain microbial ecology built into it. And that starts to, you eat it and it starts to populate in your gut. Right. And then that starts to take over. Like the more you eat McDonald's, the more of those kind of microbes are in there. And then those microbes, they need more of that particular kind of food to live, right? So they're, they're triggering your nervous system to say, we need more of that, we need more of that. And then that starts to take over. And suddenly you're driving around going, I never ate McDonald's for five years. I had it the other day and now I want it again. And I, why do I want it again? You know, like that craving impulse starts to take wow. over. And um, it sounds wacky and like new agey and all that kind of stuff, but a great example Um is in the documentary Supersize Me. So Morgan Spurlock starts to eat McDonald's. He starts to eat McDonald's first couple of days. He's like having a hard time getting it down. He's in the car, like he's on day two or whatever. And he throws up out the window, like he just can't handle it. Right. And then like two weeks, two and a half weeks or something like that later, he wakes up, he feels horrible. Like he's got headaches. He can't function properly. Then he goes to McDonald's and eats McDonald's. Feels great. He's like, oh, I feel awesome now. Like, why is that? You know, it's like this relationship, this addictive relationship that starts to take over. It's sort of like, you know, if you're, if you're a, if you're a heroin user and you know, you, the first time you use heroin, you're going to get sick. Right. But then you're going to feel sick until you get it. It's a similar kind of thing. So how, say for example, someone's listening to this and they're like, you know, that's, I mean, that certainly describes my relationship with fast food mm-hmm. when I was in my late teens and early twenties. Um, how long does it take for that? biology to change inside your gut if you started to change your diet slowly 
Um, I can't say exactly. I think it's probably an individual thing, mm-hmm. but I think it starts, it begins immediately upon the introduction change. of a different kind of food. So yeah, I mean, if, to sort of follow up and answer the question completely, you start eating healthier foods. They, 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 there's a different microbial ecology that feeds on those kind of foods. Start eating more of that, you start to crave it. So, you know, you never thought you liked kale before. Now you're like, I need that kale shake. You know, yeah. you will, your cravings will change and that. And then, you know, getting back to the spiritual part of it, that story that you tell, like, I need this or I need this to live or feel good or whatever will begin to shift. So uh, for a lot of for a lot of people, though, um, the idea to go plant based is as if you're asking them to run Ultraman, mm-hmm. like to, to they may as well run a three-day event with a double marathon at the end of it as change their entire diet because it's all they've ever known. So, you know, it, it's all like with any training or with any change in your life, it's incremental. So if someone's listening and they're like, this is a really inspiring story, if only I could, I don't know where to start. What's mm-hmm. like, you know, what's a small step? What's the thing that, like today, right now, when they put this podcast off that they can, they can possibly do? Right, for the plant curious for the plant curious. Yeah. I like what I mean, first there. of all, I'm not telling anybody what to do or not do. No, like, I'm just no, trying to just share saying, my just, experience, but I understand what well you're saying. saying yeah. Like, for example, um, I was in uh, Brisbane and uh, in Australia the other week, and we were going to go run, um, me and Dan Mack were going to run the Noosa Half. Mm-hmm. And I talked to my brother's girlfriend. I said, well, you run. Why don't you come? There's a 5K on the same day. She's like, oh, I can't do 5K. Like, it was as if I was asking you to run a marathon. Right. Like you run, you run every, she runs all the time. Right. But like, it was as in her mind, they were the same thing. Mm-hmm. A 5k, which is for me, it's relative. You, it's like yeah. that. Um, yeah. For her, it was, it was just as insurmountable. Whereas for asking someone to, to change your entire diet, everything they know in their fridge, the fact that they can shop with their eyes shut because they know exactly what they've always bought. Every shopping list is the same for decades on end. Suddenly it's this insurmountable right. thing to try and conceive. I think the biggest thing, if, if, if somebody could just try one thing um, to begin to shift, it's having a green smoothie in the morning. You know, rather than pancakes or oatmeal or whatever, if you just made that one change and like blended kale and spinach with some pineapple or some berries or, you know, an orange banana, whatever it is, like some vegetables, dark leafy greens and some fruit, and you started your day with that every day, that's huge. You know, and I think that once you start doing that and you start to under, you feel the relationship between what you're putting in your body and how you feel, because it's undeniable. If you have a really good, like Vitamix blended green juice in the morning or a juice or whatever it is, it doesn't, you don't need like the super fancy blender or whatever, just do with, you know, do the best you can with what you have. And you start to eat those, start your day eating those kinds of foods and monitor how you feel an hour later versus how you feel after eating waffles or something like that yeah. with, you know what I mean? Or even I go, oh man, a lot of people don't even eat you start to put it together and you're like, wow, I actually feel pretty good. Like I don't feel all heavy and groggy and, you know, maybe I can try something else now. And it's starting, starting to make those little incremental changes and paying attention to how you feel, I think, um, is, is massive. And I think also, uh, yeah, it's this idea of like, oh, well going plant-based, that's too hard. There's no way, you know what I mean? It's too hard. Or people try it, they go, they make it three, four five days 
and then they have a you know they go off the plan and go to in and out burger whatever mm. uh this is too hard forget it you know it's not about that it's Granted, like letting I've, go I've seen of, my, my ex-wife who never ate fast food her entire life she grew up in israel her mom was with the health and produce commission and so she was an incredibly healthy healthy woman um when she ate in and out burger for the first time, I watched her eyes roll back in her head <laughs> like it was the greatest thing she'd yeah. ever, ever, ever chewed on. So there's got to be something to it. <laughs> right. No, I don't know what they're putting in that, you know. I don't know, but it's people fly here yeah. for it. Well, it's sort of like that. I keep talking about this, so sorry if I'm repeating myself, but that new book that came out, uh, Sugar, Salt, Fat, or Salt, Sugar, Fat, whatever uh, yeah. it is, talking about how these food companies are finding yeah. ways to – put certain things in these foods that yeah. trigger the, the pleasure center and kind of activate that addictive response. You know, Julie's convinced that- This is your wife, Julie. Yeah, my wife, Julie. She's convinced that Starbucks is putting something in their coffee <laughs> that is like beyond, that's creating like an extra added, like addictive response. Yeah, because she's, she's like, I notice it. Like if I go to Coffee Bean or if I go to Pete's and I get my chai or something like that from another place, it doesn't feel the same. It's different. There's something about- Starbucks, like she's got this conspiracy theory that they're doing something in there that is like, you know, creating that like need and drive to go back there. But getting back to your question, I mean, I th it's about letting go of this perception idea or, or perfection ideal. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's not about being perfect. It's not about adhering yeah. to, you know, some kind of idealized diet. Um, you set yourself up to fail. You know, we're human beings, we're fallible, we're going to fail. And when it comes to food, my goodness, you know, it's like, it's a challenge for all of us. So it's just about making more informed, educated choices and moving in a, in a right direction and like kind of giving yourself permission to fail once in a while and being okay with that so that you can kind of, you know, it doesn't like knock you out of the game. Yeah. And I think- just your fitness career and like listening to the people that you've had on this podcast is absolutely, there's no shadow of a doubt that eating this way is enormously beneficial mm -hmm. to, to like not necessarily going to go out and do ultra fitness, but any kind of, right. uh, any kind of sport. Um, I did want to ask who's the, um, who's the female rich role? Who's the, female. who's the, who's the female plant-based ultra athlete? Who's the, because uh, it seems like it's, it's all, there's a lot of dudes there's a lot of dudes mm -hmm. doing this uh, plant-based um, kind know, of advocacy or whatever. Advocacy, yeah. Who's the who's the female rich? Role? Who's the athlete? Who's the athlete? Yeah. You mean? Would it be Venus Williams? Do you think? Um, possibly, yeah. I mean, they're still kind of relatively new to it. Um, there's an Ironman athlete who also has done Ultraman named Hillary Biscay, mm. who's amazing. She's an incredible triathlete, super talented. You know, she's won Ironman like a big Ironman race mm. before, and. Um, she just kills it out there and, uh, she's plant-based. Um, there aren't as many, well, there aren't as many, I don't know. I think that there's something, I think there are plenty of plant-based women out there. It's much, you know, like I just had Lisa Fallon Mendel on the other day and she's killing it in age group triathlon races and, you know, is on the podium and all of that vegan. Um, and she's a wellness coach and, you know, there's plenty of people out there like that. I think that, that a plant-based diet is an easier thing for a woman to kind of maneuver into. And maybe there's not the, the sort of feeling of the pressure to evangelize, like maybe it is for the guys because mm. it's so out of the masculine box for a guy to like do that and be an athlete that it's almost like you feel compelled to go, Oh my God, who would have thought like you guys should check this out. Like, you know, there's a different way of doing this. Which I, I did want to talk about as well. And I think, 
And like the first time I I, I, I met you, we were at a, uh, a one of your book talks, and um, that was the question I asked. Yeah, right. Like, what's your, what are your thoughts on the, the emasculating the 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 male vegan and 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 or the guy who's on a plant based diet? I know you had one of my favorite. I know it sounds like I'm pumping your tires, man, but one of the podcasts I listen to uh, that I really like, actually, you and James Lightning Wilkes, um, when he talks about don't mistake my kindness for weakness. Mm-hmm. Don't mistake my compassion for weakness. Right. Um, the guy's an MMA death machine. Right. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, in, in Australia, I actually, I was talking about it on another podcast um, down in Australia. There's a, there's a commercial um, where a guy goes to this fridge and he pulls out one of those, you know, like little box breakfast juices mm-hmm. uh, and he sips it. And he goes, makes his icky face. And his, in one version, his girlfriend comes in and the other version, his wife comes in and sees him make an icky face and goes, you're making that face because we're going to my mother mother's house. How dare you? Da, 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 da. And like mm. just goes to town on him and just totally emasculates him and, and tears shreds off him in the kitchen. And then the logo comes on, don't make soy face, have a real dairy drink. Right. And it's like, come oh, on. There's no shortage of commercials like that. They're, <laughs> they're coming out like all the time there was one for like Schick razors that i i tweeted about it recently it was on it was online and it was it made some cr- similar kind of crack about like what it means to be a man and yeah. you know we just were constantly um reinforcing this ridiculous stereotype and it goes back to you know the beginning of man when man was the one who went out and slayed the beast and brought it back. And that was what was, you know, your job and you weren't a man unless you could provide in that way. And we don't live in that world anymore. And that doesn't necessarily need to be the way that we define ourselves. And I think James's quote is profound. I mean, do you watch game of Thrones? Love it. All right. So look at, look at the way, (laughs) look at the way young King Joffrey rules. So his idea of being a man is to just be as aggressive and brutal as possible. And he feels like he is affirming him, his masculinity in that regard, but it's backfiring on him completely. He doesn't have the respect of, of anybody who knows what's going on. And the true strong king is the, the king that understands restraint and compassion. And there's something inherently very masculine about that, you know, when to hold back and how to hold back and, and when you show kindness. And I think that's, that's interesting, you know, and I don't think it's talked about enough. And, you know, I mean, let's face it, since when is it, why is it considered manly to go down to the Ralph supermarket or the Kroger or the whatever, buy your chuck roast, bring it back and, and put it on the barbecue in the, in the backyard? Like, I don't understand what's, you know, that's, that's the manly thing to do. But again, that's a story we tell ourselves that we reaffirm that really is kind of absurd. But it's totally totally supported by all of the marketing around it. Yeah. When I first when I first shifted my diet and I started to come out of this haze of just eating, I guess I want to say it differently, but it's exactly what it was, eating what I was told to. Right. By the billboards and the magazines and the television commercials and the radio commercials. Once I came out of that, I had a look at like it's almost inescapable this diet that's marketed to the, you know, Western civilization. Like this is what you should eat. Mm-hmm. You have to have this in the morning. You have to have this at lunch. You have to have this at dinner. And here's an easier, cheaper version. And here's a version where, you know, you can drive up to a window and get it. And um, do you think we're far away from seeing that kind of marketing for a, a healthier way of living? I think that uh, those marketing messages are incredibly powerful and they're backed by very well-funded corporate interests that 
have very vested interest in keeping us thinking and eating this way. There's a lot at stake, right? But I think that things are changing. You know, I'm optimistic and hopeful. Uh, You know, five years ago, the idea of eating plant-based wasn't where it is now. You know, you have people like President Clinton espousing the virtues of doing this. And every day, somebody new and interesting is talking about it. And it's part of the public discourse in a way that it never has been before. And it's really not the, the provenance of the marginalized hippie anymore, like it always has been. And, you know, that's the stereotype that I brought to it, um, you know, thinking about like, oh, well, if you're going to be vegan, you're the guy who's following the Grateful Dead around with the, you know, like with the dreadlocks and the hacky sack. And it's like, that's not my trip, man. I'm never going to do that. You carry yeah, a VHS like, of atrocities at a chicken farm with you at all times. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like I am not going to be that guy. So if I'm going to, I'm never going to eat that way because I don't want to have anything to do with that, you know, that yeah. image, you know? And so it's about changing the dialogue to free ourselves from that definition which I think, you know, is why plant-based is a better term because it's more neutral and it's not a politically charged term. It's more accessible for people. Plant power has its own kind of masculine connotation, which is why I like it. Um, And just, you know, I was talking about Rip Esselstyn's new book, My Beef with Meat, which just came out yesterday. Uh, It's a a couple hours ago. It was number 13 on Amazon in all books. And I'm sure by the end of today or tomorrow, it'll be in the top 10. That's every book on Amazon, right? Every book. So that tells me that this is gaining steam. So I've got it written here at the top of this page. Why now? Why now? Why? Yeah. I've been been eating this way. When when I tell people I've been vegan for over 10 years, they're like, oh, Oh, so you're not just doing it because it's – fashionable right today or because you saw someone do it on Mm -hmm. on the view you're like no i've been there's a long time right why now why now it's almost like a malcolm gladwell question uh like a tipping tipping it's like a tipping point thing right like it's taken this long for enough people to kind of congeal around this concept and for the information flow and the ideas to spread kind of organically and virally um you know Rip Esselstyn's father, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, started treating uh, cardiac patients with a plant-based diet back in the 1970s. It was anathema. He ended up losing his job at the Cleveland Clinic. And like he's been shouting from the mountaintops since then about, you know, basically his message then is exactly what it is now. And it took like forks over knives and all these sort of books and, and, and documentaries to come out to now where he's finally sort of being taken seriously and, and vindicated in a way, yeah. it took that long. So things take time, you know, yeah. it takes time for people to acclimate to new ideas and, you know, you see it, but now it, it really is becoming pervasive. I mean, we live in Los Angeles, so it's like every other restaurant now, you know, is vegan or offers yeah. vegan options. So we're spoiled in that regard, but, but uh, you know, it's cropping up more and more and more. And I think, you know, I think Forks Over Knives actually had a lot to do with that. That documentary. I wonder what, because in, in Australia, we have a very different healthcare system where we have socialized medicine and despite what many people's televisions tell them, it doesn't turn you into Russia. Everything's actually kind of okay. <laughs> right. I was just in Canada a couple of weeks ago and they were telling me about it and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe how good that sounds. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, but what it does is it puts the onus of responsibility for wellness kind of back on the people as a whole and 
you know, there's, you know, if, if you're going to get a lung transplant, my tax dollars are going to have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So then that kind of switches it around. And then you start, I've noticed in Australia, you start to see, first it was one quarter of an aisle at the supermarket where I would go and get, you know, like tofu and things like that. And now there's an entire gluten-free aisle. Mm-hmm. All right. So, and it, it just goes on and on. It's just like getting bigger and bigger and bigger uh, down there. The, the, the kind of the awareness for for eating, kind of at least more. Oh, what is what does he say? It uh, Sid con- consciously eating consciously. consciously. Sid yeah. Gaza Hillman, the, mm-hmm. the guy with the hat. Yeah. Um, he talks about it. it's like just people eating, con- just being Mind- aware and mindfully, mindfully. That's yeah. the word. Being mindful about mm-hmm. what you're eating. Being mindful. It's not just a piece of meat on a styrofoam tray. It's, right. You know, and so. I just found I just found it kind of interesting that when I was just down there the other day that this will make no sense to you, but you can get vegan Tim Tams in Australia. Which what's uh, a Tim Tam, dude? Someone please send Rich some vegan <laughs> Tim Tams so I can make him do a vegan Tim Tam slam. It's the greatest biscuit ever created by humans. All right, so don't answer that question. We'll just wait to it receive truly it is. in the mail. It truly, right? it, it truly, truly is. Um, is that some kind of weird Vegemite? No, brother. I was uh, Vegemite's vegan, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did want to ask you about training because I, I have gone for runs with you and if anyone ever gets the opportunity to go for a run with Rich just kind of keep it in the back of your mind yeah this guy the, just the first time I asked him well, what's your best marathon time he goes I don't know I've never run one right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've run a double I've run a back to back and I've done it with a swim and a bike on the other side of it but I've never just run ra- one I don't race that much uh, so we're, we're pounding up this hill and uh, I, I want to ask you this because I want to know what you do when you're doing those enormous endurance events, when you're swimming for 10 kilometers, when you're uh, and then getting off and biking for you know another half a day or spending a whole day riding 200 miles. Surely even, even you, you've got the chat, chat, chat in your head. Because mm-hmm. even yesterday when you were asking me about where my heart rate is, the first time you asked me, I told you where it was. You're like, oh, you better slow down. From that point, every time I saw that heart rate, I didn't feel like I had to walk. I felt mm-hmm. completely fine. But inside me, I was like, oh, man, I'm going to have to stop and walk now because I had that trigger in my head. Like, right. How do you overcome those negative thoughts, especially when you're getting fatigued, especially when you're getting tired? Um, how do you, how do you, what do you do? Because that's all it I is. Think, it's just a thought. Yeah. It's, it's not actually a, have anything to do with my body or right. how much energy I've got. Right. Um, it's tricky. Like, I wish I had, like, the magic bullet, like, canned answer to that that could solve everybody's problems. Just tell me what you do when you're on the I mean, bike I think that, that I think what I'm on those, whether it's a race or, like, a, a really long, challenging training session, um, I try to get to like a state of no mind where it's like an active meditation where there's, there's no to very little thought going on. And that's a practice. That's like a meditation. It's like practicing meditation actively in the pursuit of training. Um, and the more I can get into that space, then time becomes very elastic. Right. And, as I progress the training volume up from, you know, a two hour ride up to a 10 or 12 hour ride, like when I'm really maxing out on training, you know, I've gradually increased it. So I've acclimated slowly to the volume. So an eight hour ride, like doesn't seem that long to me because it's that elastic nature of time. Um, Cause time's weird. You know, it's like when you're really hurting, you know, a minute can seem like forever, you know, but if you can get into that kind of like 
fugue state where you have an elevated heart rate, but it's you're fit enough to sustain it for a very long period of time. It's like this weird pipe cleaner through your system where everything gets cleansed out and you're like this weird blank slate. And you know, something happened, man. Something happened. You had you had a DNF on your first marathon. uh, My first Ironman. Oh, I did. Though, well, I tried to run. Yeah, I tried to run a marathon before Ultraman. Yeah, so it happened to you. You stopped. Mm -hmm. The the the, something happened in your mind, and you had to and in my body and in your body. Well, this is what I'm saying. At some point, you were able to overcome that. And what what was it that that shifted? How did you get over that? How did you switch from the guy that has to go, oh, no, I'm going to have to stop and walk, even though everyone's Mm -hmm. come to see me and I've told everyone I'm going to do this and there's so much expectation, to the guy that goes, you know what? Yes, my knee hurts a bit, but it's only a few more miles and I'm going to be fine. Right. Preparation. You know, I took the training incredibly seriously and uh, I did everything in my training that – I experienced everything in training that I would experience during the race. So by the time I lined up for the first Ultraman, I knew that I could complete it because I'd done race simulate. I'd done three race simulation weekends in the two months, like sort of prior lead up. So the idea of running 52 miles on the third day, I'd run a 45 mile run, like so tired I could barely get out of bed. So I knew I was ready and I knew I could do it. So when that moment came where it's like, I'm hurting, it's like, oh, well, I was here, you know, six weeks before and I was able to push through. So I would like recollect those moments and draw on them for strength to say, oh, oh, you remember when you felt like that before? So, you know, there's no shortcut to that experience and putting the work in, you know, like when I DNF that, when I DNF'd at Wildflower and when I DNF'd in that marathon, you know, before I hired a coach and started to learn about training. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have any experience and I hadn't trained properly to experience what to expect when I would kind of come across that in a race context. So I know I've heard you talking about this about, I don't know, I have, cause when you talked about it, I'm like, I do that too. The looping thoughts. Yeah. Do you replace the loop of this is going to hurt, this hurts a lot with the loop of I've been here before, I've been here before. I try, you know, I mean, you know, you do the best you can. I mean, it's negative thought patterns can be addictive. You know what I mean? And again, it goes back like, this is the story I'm telling myself. This hurts, this hurts, this hurts, this is horrible. When can I quit? When can I quit? And the more you kind of repeat that and cement that thought, then the more likely you are to quit, right? Irrespective of what your body's doing. So it's sort of, um, it's drawing this distinction between higher consciousness and thought, right? So we kind of walk around and think, well, our thoughts are who we are, but that's actually not true. And in my experience, it's not true. You, you can be aware of your thoughts, which by very definition means there does, there's a distinction between your consciousness and your, and your thinking mind, right? If you can sort of have a judgment on your thoughts somewhat simultaneously with having the thought, then that must be two different things going on right now, two different systems, right? So to recognize that thought for what it is and to make a decision about how much power you're going to give it and to say, it's just a thought. I, I can choose, my higher self can choose to pay attention to that and to give it strength and power, or I can choose to dismiss it and replace it with a thought, another thought pattern that will hopefully loop that will kind of point me more in the direction of the goal that I'm trying to achieve. You, you've just uh, launched a thousand PRs, right? Now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. No, really, because uh, as the more I train, the more 
I, I go for, you know, doing marathons and then signing up for this ultra and to do this ultra, the more that I realize how much work I have to put into that aspect of my training. Mm-hmm. I have to, not only do I have to work on, you know, doing the long runs and doing the, the intervals and things like that, work on my nutrition, I have to work on what happens between my ears. Absolutely. I get really fatigued. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I say it all the time that, you know, one of the kind of guys that inspired me to do Ultraman in the beginning was this guy, David Goggins, amazing incredible athlete navy seal had been like a football player and a power lifter at one time weighed like i don't know 250 280 pounds or something like that and decided he wanted to go and try the 10 hardest endurance challenges in the world to honor his um fallen brethren um who had people who had lost their lives um in overseas wars and he had never been a runner or a triathlete and then he threw himself into doing races like Badwater and ultraman um, and did quite well, despite not fitting the prototype at all, like not looking like a runner, not really training like a runner or a triathlete, and and uh, just being an overall badass, basically. That Navy <laughs> yeah, SEAL, like, Black Ops head training. Exactly. That's what he's got. Yeah, like a laser focus, yeah. right? Wow. And he said, uh, he said um, when you think you're done and cooked, you've actually only accomplished about 40% of, of what you're capable of. So. And it's a, men, it's a mental barrier. It's not the body. The body is not the limiter. It's the mind. And so when you go out and you're training to be aware of that, that you're not just training your body, you're also training your mind, you're training your spirit. And, and every workout has a purpose and you should be conscious of what you're doing. Like it's easy to just, ah, oh, I have an hour, I'm going to go out and run and do that, you know, fuck off or whatever. But to, to go, all right, well, you know, what are some things that I can work on mentally? Like what are, what are the things that generally trip me up what can I do differently? And it's like rebooting your operating system. Yeah. You know? Lucky like we've got all that time out on the trail. Um yeah. since the since the hardcovers come out, um it's <coughs> and this must have been such a thrill. I don't even know how you would have been able to sleep at night when you found out that this book didn't now I hope I got it this right. It became a part of the curriculum at a college and you went to go speak mm-hmm. at that college. What was that experience? Yeah, it was like? crazy. That was a that was a crazy cool experience. Well, I got asked to um, from time to time. I get asked to go and speak, and usually it's like a veg fest, you know, sort of like preaching to the choir, you yeah. know, to the converted, you know, like. And in the summertime, there are all these veg fest. Every city's got one, you know. And you kind of go on tour, and it's the same people that ne- are speaking. I never have to you know? pack. I never have to pack <laughs> traveling food when I go there because I'll just get something. Oh there. yeah, you go there, and it's like <laughs> all the food's like, there. Yeah. It's awesome. Normally, I'm taking you know. bags of nuts and bananas. I'm taking well, all they, my food with and me, they, and they have, and all the vendors are giving it to you, and you For get free. goodie bags and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's awesome. I bring my own toothpick. Um, but uh, but yeah, I got asked to come out to um, Charleston, South Carolina and speak at the the College of Charleston. And I was like, oh, cool. The first, like I've never spoke at a college before. That's pretty cool. Um, and I, what I didn't find out until like just before I was going there was that they'd put my book on uh, the freshman curriculum. It's required reading in, in, in this required freshman course called the Freshman Experience, which I gather has something to do with like kind of you know, giving freshman students kind of an alternative experience to the typical kind of college curriculum. I don't fully understand it completely, but um, it's pretty cool, man. I got to go and speak to the students and and I also spoke to the general public there and it was like, wow, I can't believe I wrote a book that's being taught in a college. Like that is such a trip. Were they, now this is the, were they approaching it from a place of, yes, you could go and, you know, try and live the dream that you saw at Animal House or Revenge of the Nerds. But have a read of this guy's book and see that he actually did that. And then was that the angle they were coming from? 
Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the guy who kind of put it together, uh, is a big, you know, like sort of vegan advocate. Um, and he just, you know, loved the book and wanted me to come out. So there was definitely kind of the, the plant-based diet component of that that contributed to it. But I think kind of, you know, in a more general sense, the book, it had a little bit of a slow debut because it, you know, there's a picture of a guy running on the cover and it's like, oh, well, this is a book for runners about how to be a better runner, you know, and that appeals to a certain demographic of people, but that's not a huge, you know, that's not, that's not the, the general public at large. Right. And it took, a, it took time for word to kind of get out or spread that actually it's, it, that's sort of the surface level story, but it's really about how do you access a better version of yourself and diet is certainly like the beginning portal to that but it's not the be all end all that's like the starting line and once you kind of clean up your diet and you know in my case plant based and I stand by that being optimal at least in my experience um then what you know it's sort of like you develop a clarity of mind and and a more energized kind of feeling of being in your body and and an increase in vitality and energy. And then what do you channel that towards? And so the message really, or the theme that I was trying to express that hopefully comes across is that it's an opportunity, it's a growth opportunity to access and unlock a better, more authentic version of yourself, to more fully express something that maybe is locked deep inside you or has been latent or that you've been afraid to kind of pursue. And it gives people like uh, permission or a little bit of a inspirational roadmap to kind of begin that journey. And it has nothing to do with running or Ultraman or, or any of yeah. that. It could be playing the banjo or what or whatever. And so in the context of speaking at colleges, there's that. There's sort of this call to action to invest in yourself, to think differently, to not like be an automaton to just do your homework, but to actually do what I didn't do in college, which, which was to develop a relationship with myself to try to understand what is it that I want to express and offer? What do I want to devote my life to? Um, and college is like the fertile ground to kind of begin that journey. And, you know, unfortunately I was too loaded. This is what I was <laughs> going to disconnect ask. Like, from myself to do so that. Go back. What is it? 27 years. Um, you're at college and they say, Oh, this, this Ultraman athlete's going to come and talk to you. Like say, what, what do you think it would have changed your life? If you, as you were, saw mm-hmm. you speak now. Probably not. You know, I was just getting going. My my alcoholism was just starting to kick in. You know, it's like I actually found that you, bit of the book like so visual to read. I was because mm-hmm. that was my 17, 18, 19 year old experience. It was just mm-hmm. an endless it was house parties and beer. Right. And just unstoppable. And it was nuts. Yeah. Crazy. There, I don't think I could have I wouldn't have been able to hear it, you know. You know, the 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 sort of uh you know, the message presents itself when the person is ready to hear it. You know, personally, I wouldn't have been ready to hear it, but you know, maybe there are other people, maybe I would have, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like I remember being in high school and uh, they carted in some recovering alcoholic to come and talk to us. And he told some crazy stories about how like he just couldn't watch football or have, or have pizza anymore without getting drunk. And I just thought that was, uh, you know, absurd. And this was like before I even started drinking. And I was like, I don't want any part of that, dude. Like, first of all, he doesn't look like he's enjoying his life. You know? yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and I don't know what I'm supposed to be getting out of this. And, you know, I, I still remember that. 
but I remember being kind of turned off at yeah. the time and, and maybe there was a preachiness to it. I'm, I'm not sure or whatever. So, you know, how do you relate to a college student? How do you get through to them and help and, and hopefully inspire them? So you don't do it by telling them don't drink and eat healthy food. You just try to tell us, tell a story and see if it kind of connects with somebody. What was the reaction? Did some guys, or guys and girls come up to you afterwards? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, not everybody, but, you know, definitely like I did a Q&A and there were plenty of students that were like, how do you do this and how do you do that? And um, it was cool, man. When you were drinking, you would still go to the gym, right? You were still yeah. working out. Occasionally. Not near, not in the latter years, yeah. but, you know, there was a good, yeah, there was a, well, first of all, I started drinking alcoholically when I was still a competitive swimmer right. trying to do two of the, both of those things at the same time, <laughs> which didn't work out too well. But I think I know what, what are you getting? I think I know where you're going with this, but I'm just kind of getting what was, what was your, well, let me just go back and then I'll ask you this question because I'm really fascinated to know you got into what Stanford was it? Yeah. On mm-hmm. the back of your swimming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was a good student too, yeah. but I, well, you know, I probably wouldn't have gotten into Stanford without the swimming, certainly. So when your your competitive peak, which you talk about in the book, was in swimming, was in college, right? My freshman year, yeah. was the last time that I swam fast. Yeah. So, who's fitter, that rich roll, or you know, or if you were eating the way you did now, if you lived your life the way you did now, when you were there, where you had that opportunity, that swim program, that coach, that school, do you ever think about what? what might've been, what could have happened? Of course, unquestionably. I mean, but who doesn't, you know, that's not, a, you know, unique to me. I mean, I think most people or a lot of people go, God, if I could go to college now, knowing what I know now, yeah, like, yeah. you know, I'd I, already have a degree. At, yeah. I mean, well, just, you know, you think back to college and you're like, oh my God, like basically the whole world was available to me. It was yeah. there for the taking. If I just kind of could have showed up for it in a different, yeah. more responsible way, you know, I mean, it's okay. Like, so it's, it's been a bit of unfair of a question because you're right. So I guess the question is like, who, who's fitter, plant-based rich in his mid forties or, uh, or that rich? What's your definition of fit? Um, that's a good question. Like, who's? I, I ask this because um, the reason, the way I got into eating a plant-based diet was a very different way from everybody else's. Mm-hmm. There's this game we play in Australia called cricket. All right, I've never heard of that. All right, it's it's kind of and now. Here's the point. Here's the part where you start to explain the rules of cricket. Uh, it's exactly like baseball, <laughs> and we hear crickets. No, it's a, cricket is exactly like baseball. Is that I hit a ball to you, I throw a ball to you, you hit the ball away for a certain distance, and you have to get from one place to another before the ball comes back. Mm-hmm. All right, you get out the same way, caught on the fall, la 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 la. Um, so we have this, but except cricket can go for five days. And right. when when we have a World Series, we That's actually play awesome other man. countries. All right, yeah. <laughs> not like this world. Series. Five days, five days. We have games to go for five days, and hundred thousand people show up, and it's the greatest. <sighs> anyway, so one of the greatest that. cricket players um, my country, Australia, has ever seen was a guy by the name of Greg Chappell, and he was a god when we were kids. A mm-hmm. God, all right. And he wrote a book called the Men's Health Manual or the Men's Health Repair Manual. I read it when I was twenty three, twenty four, and he was talking about a plant based. He was in his 50s at this point. He was talking about eating plant-based and his experience of quitting dairy. And he said there, like, I'm 50-something right now, and the way I eat right now, I'm fitter, faster, sharper than when I was considered the best batsman on the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And he did lament for a second about, you know, if, if I did it then, there was this big sporting record, like breaking, I guess it's like right. breaking, breaking Babe Ruth's big record. Like I would have broken it. It mm-hmm. would have smashed to pieces if I was eating the way I do now. And that really affected me because it had nothing to do with dreadlocks. It had nothing to do with patchouli oil. It was just the guy who was this icon. That's back when, you know, sport had beards. Men had beards right. and moustaches, you know. It was like right. manly, yeah. big V-neck shirts. And like, like here's this guy Harry who chest. was this super masculine dude going, I am fitter, more powerful and faster now than I was when I was considered the greatest athlete. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, no, I, I know where he's coming from and I, I feel the same way. I mean, I would, I guess I asked you the question of what's your definition of fitness? Because for me, fitness now, uh, is sort of a a holistic definition of kind of being balanced between mind, body, and spirit. Certainly way more fit now than I was in college. I was completely out of balance. I could bench press more in college and I could swim the hundred butterfly faster in college than I, than I can now for sure. Um, so on that very limited, um, kind of definition of fitness, uh, you could, I guess you could make the argument that I was fitter in college when I was swimming five hours a day and not cycling and not running. And I was 18, you know what yeah. I mean? Well, when you're so 18, it's like, I'm 46 years hours. old. Right. Yeah. But I would consider myself way more fit now and, and sort of connected to my body and, you know, kind of self-aware and dialed in for sure. No question about it. And had I been plant-based in college, I mean, dude, you know, like I think about that all the time, you know, all the time. Um, it's interesting. I got a little side anecdote I had on the podcast uh, maybe a month or so, or maybe, a, no, it was one of my earlier guests, uh, my friend Garrett Weber Gale, who is an Olympic gold medalist swimmer, uh, swimmer from the University of Texas. And he was on that four by uh, 100 free relay uh, at the Beijing Olympics where the United States came from behind and beat France and Michael Phelps. And it was like a big deal, right? Like he was on an amazing swimmer, like incredibly fast, super into food. He's got a website called Athletic Foodie and he's a professional swimmer now trying again for the Olympics. And he, he left me a uh, voicemail over the weekend. He was in Charlotte at a big meet. The, I think it's called the Ultra Swim. It's a big swim meet every spring in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's like, hey, Rich, it's Garrett. I'm out here in Charlotte to meet. I'm at Ricky Barron's house. Ricky's like another like massive like swim star, right? And he's like, we're having lunch. We're talking about food and nutrition and health and plant-based and all this kind of stuff. And and uh, this guy, Mike Alexandrov, he's a he's a like a Olympic, you know, hundred breaststroker, guy's like amazing swimmer. He starts telling me how he's read this book and you know, he's starting to learn about being plant-based. He started eating chia seeds in the morning and he's got all this energy and he's just killing it in his workouts. And and uh and then I've like I was like, wow, that's cool. Like I, I wasn't I didn't I didn't I'd heard the name Mike Alexandrov, but I didn't know who he was. And I, I was like, I checked him out online. He ended up winning like the hundred breaststroke and the two hundred breaststroke at that meet that weekend. And I emailed him, I'm like, dude, chia seeds are are rocking it out for you. And like I I I don't know if he's completely plant-based. Yeah. But it sounds like he's, you know, probably kind of leaning in that direction, maybe more so than most swimmers, because Garrett was telling me they still most swimmers eat abominably. Um, but for him to be, you know, per, like for a swimmer at that level, at that elite level to be, you know, there's a lot of fear. You know, it's like even if you read a book and it says, absolutely, this diet will make you a better athlete. It's sort of like it's scary to try something 
different than what you've been told. Even if you kind of believe it intellectually in the back of your mind, you're like, yeah, but I don't know, you know, and it takes balls and courage to try something different because there's a lot to lose when you're an athlete at that level. And yeah. that's your job. I think in, you know, if you hear it kind of bandied about it, especially when in the wake of what we've seen in the last 12 months when just the international bodies are cracking down on doping, cracking mm-hmm. down hard, athletes are just going to look uh, to nutrition. They're going to look to nutrition for the advantage. Right, I hope so. That's where they're going to look, and that's hopefully they'll find that. And and like then, and it's, it's so not funny. the cover of a Wheaties box, yeah. it'll be the cover of the kale packet. Hey! Right. <laughs> the irony is that for the most part, um, you know, at least in my experience, uh, you know, athletes are so like, they're all about, you know, what's my workout and training really hard and, and even like extending that to all the kind of rehab stuff they do and weight room and strength. And, and, uh, but then when it comes to diet, it's just like, whatever, you know, like yeah. they'll just eat whatever cause they're hungry and they're just like calories in calories out. And this same guy, Garrett was telling me he was at the Olympic training center in Colorado Springs for a training camp. And this is where, America's best and brightest go to prepare for the Olympics. And I was like, how's the cafeteria there? And he was just like, really? He was like, you wouldn't believe he's like, they have healthy options there, but you kind of have to ask for it. It's the Olympic training. It's like, yeah, exactly. Right. I can't believe it. I don't, there's a lot of work to be done. That's astonishing. I know that's that's absolutely astonishing. Well, and it goes, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's just, it's, I mean, where do you even point the finger? You know, it's like there's a lot of education that still needs to happen. You get your, you get your mate to tell his buddy there at Colorado Springs to get you and Julie in there and you and your wife. And can dial go it in, in, right. Yeah, well, this is, you know, this is the, where does, where does this go? I mean, obviously, even the very first time you considered raising your or having your kids eat mostly a plant-based thing, you guys, you're intelligent, you know, husband and wife, you, oh, we should really figure this out and make sure that, Mm-hmm. all their bones and everything are going to grow right. Like you didn't just guess it. Right. You obviously did your homework. So it's in education that, you know, this is as a way of, of eating and a way of living and a way of creating the best version of yourself is, is going to move forward, isn't it? And like so in your experience or your opinion beyond things like this podcast, like where do you see this kind of education coming from? Do you see perhaps, you know, putting, putting like it's in the freshman class at one university what about, you know, in the, in the primary school or in a, in a high school? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the goal, you know what I mean? And it starts with word of mouth and it starts with things like little podcasts like this. And, and then it grows to, you know, books like finding ultra and my beef with meat, you know, and people starting to get the word out and then it creates like a momentum around it. The problem is that like we were talking about before, there's a lot of cemented vested interests that, you know, really don't want to budge, you know, so mm. there's huge food companies that are providing the school systems with the food, you know, That's providing right, here in America and here in America, the, the cafeteria, <clears throat> the kids eat lunch at school. Yeah. I mean, you can bring your own lunch, but you know, school lunch in America is abominable. It is absolutely horrific the food that they're given and what they're told is healthy or not. And what, you know, there's regulations like they have to have a fruit and they have to have a vegetable, but you know, when they can characterize ketchup as a vegetable, you know, it's just, it's, it's absurd. And, you know, there's been people that have been working hard to try to change it. You know, Jamie Oliver had that TV show. Was food it last Revolution. year, a couple of years, years ago called food revolution. And I thought it was wonderful. You know, he went into this small town and he kind of revolutionized their little, um, I think it was in Pennsylvania, 
change your school lunch program. And, you know, he was able to kind of expose standard operating procedure at these schools and, and enact some small changes and kind of empower the kids and the teachers and the faculty or whatever to take greater responsibility for that. And then um, the story I heard was that the next season he wanted to come to Los Angeles and do the same thing, you know, at this larger, more entrenched school district program. And it just wasn't going to happen. Like he couldn't get, he couldn't get it going because there was too much political resistance because there's too much money involved with these people. From the contractors that provide oh, the yeah. food, the, yeah, the yeah, trucking yeah. and all that. Absolutely. Yeah. There's unions and there's lobbying groups and, you know, they, there's a lot of, you know, powerful interests that really don't want any of these changes to happen. People, so, don't, people don't even consider that that would even go on. Like with these weird, we are these weird creatures. We have to put mm-hmm. something in our bodies at least three times a day or we get cranky, irritable. And after a couple of weeks we die. Yeah. And, and so it's such a, it, it, we will f- forgive a lot of badness around it as I'm hungry. It gets to a point where you're so hungry. I don't care. I'll just have it. Put it mm-hmm. in, my, in my face. You talk about it in your book when you bonked riding and you right. pulled over and you ate out of a garbage dumpster. Right. <laughs> you know, you, but you were at that point. You were like, yeah. dude, I've just got to eat. And so people tend not to want to think about that. They tend not, not want to think that some. That- well, and then you, when you start to kind of say, well, here's how it really works, you start sounding like some kind of lunatic conspiracy theorist. I but, did bring you know, my tinfoil hat. Yeah, I know. But on that note, uh, there was a story. Um, a big story about a week ago about a public school in New York, in Queens, uh, that is the first public school to institute a vegetarian uh, school lunch program, which is like amazing, right? Like, so when you understand like how entrenched these, these, these interests are to be able to enact a seismic change like mm. that is, is like a big deal. Right. Yeah. So, um, I'm actually, I'm going to New York tomorrow and I've got a bunch of podcast interviews lined up when I'm there, but I'm going to go out to that school and interview, um, some of the people that it's are amazing. around of that. So I want to, I want to know like, how did that happen? But you know, it's like, it's, it's an amazing story. Cause the, like as we going, circling back to where we started watching your kids make their afternoon snack today. Um, this is the time of their life where they, create their food habits mm-hmm. and if the food habit they're getting at school is slop on a plate with some cut up peach in a can and that's you know it? that's then i know when i first started living alone when i started when i moved out um i went to the grocery store and i was like well what do i get oh, i get what i've always eaten mm-hmm. you know, i didn't know anything else right um and so edu- and education was a very big part of me and yeah totally i, I made some big mistakes and i conk out a lot of the time and I just <laughs> yeah. eat pasta all week and, and freak out. Um, but speaking of your family, this, this has nothing to do with anything that you um, have written in your book um, nor uh, what you've talked about on your podcast, which I, I am kind of interesting, interested to know. Um, what, considering it's something that I'm not, and there's a lot of people who are listening that are not, that are considering that this is in their future, what do I need to know about being a father? Oh, dude, you're coming out of left field with that one. That's pretty heavy. Watching you yesterday, Rich and I went for a run up a mountain. Well, Rich strolled and crawled no, up a mountain. No. And it was freaking hot out <laughs> yesterday, man. <laughs> and it was like 100 home. degrees at like 8 a.m. It was hot. We came home and one of his daughters is just frolicking in the pool. And just watching the two of you interact, watching the two of you light up like that, I was like, man, there's something, that's a relationship in your life that you're not going to get anywhere else. And like, what, 
to guys who are like, oh, I don't know about kids, guys who are afraid of kids, guys who are like meet a girl and they go, yeah, but she wants kids oh, mm-hmm. and they're terrified of it. What would you say? So let me ask you, let me get in that way. What would you yeah. say to them? I would say that I'm not the guy who was walking around going, I can't wait to have kids in a family. You know what I mean? Like, uh, uh, I, lo- I love my kids and I can't imagine my life without them. They've enriched my life in, in ways I can't even, you know, articulate. Um, but it wasn't like I was that guy who was like yearning for it his whole life. Uh, in fact, when I got sober, um, my relationship experience had been so horrible that, you know, I wasn't even sure I ever wanted to be in a relationship again, let alone be married. And it took a lot of years of, of work and, and, uh, to get to a place where I was even comfortable being intimate with another person, you know, feeling, be feeling safe in that, in that respect. Um, and I thought that my next girlfriend would be, you know, five, five to seven years younger than me and, and hopefully relatively issue free. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like after this experience that I had with this terrible kind of marriage thing that happened that I talk about in the book. Um, but, you know, life and love doesn't, doesn't work that way. You know what I mean? It, you know, I met Julie, she already had two boys from a previous marriage and the heart wants what the heart wants. So when I, you know, when I wanted to pursue a relationship with Julie, it, it came, you know, it was the whole package kind of coming in with it. Not that I, you know, they had, I wasn't trying to replace their dad who's very much in their life. Um, he since passed away, but, but, uh, was like, oh, wow. Like I had like instant kind of family situation going on. And that was not in the car. That was not what I was kind of, well, to say wanting is a weird word, but it wasn't what I had programmed Mm. for me. Um, But then realizing, you know, how amazing that was and then wanting, you know, my own children as a result of that. So what Um, was the, what was the click? Was it the fact that Julie turned up with these, these guys and you kind of got to have a bit of a test run? There was a little bit of that, you know what I mean? Like it was a little bit of the, sort of being the cool uncle for a while uh-huh. and getting used to being around young people before I had my own kids. So I, I had like a little bit of a, um, a little bit more experience than maybe a new dad uh, because I was, you know, I, 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 w- I got to spend so much time with these young boys that were three and four when I first met them. Um, and also when, you know, when I had my first child with Julie she'd been through it before. So there wasn't any of that new parent panic, you know, like maybe I was panicked, but she's like, it's handled. You know what I mean? Like, don't worry about it. Like I've done this before. It's going to be okay. So just, just go, just go back at least, at least nine and a half months. <laughs> just go back, yeah. go back to where, like, where was the switch from? Oh, I don't even know if I want this done, if I can have this in my life to, you know what? Yeah, I do want this. What, what was like, I'm asking because there, there are a lot of guys that, go, oh, I don't know if I could ever do it. And they're too afraid mm-hmm. to. And then all of a sudden they turn around and they're like, oh, shit, I'm 50. Right. Uh, and I th- honestly, I think women that, too. Yeah. Well, I think it first started with being in a healthy relationship, mm-hmm. you know, and that kind of like grounded me in a certain way and made me want to build on that. So the first part was was being being healthy with my partner, you know what I mean? And that took a lot of work, like I said, to be able to kind of be in that space after never being in a healthy relationship my whole life. Um, And with that grounding comes, I think, a level of sort of settling or domestication where you get more comfortable with that idea. And then having the boys around going, yeah, I want to, I want to build this. I want more of this in my life. I mean, you know, I think that, that, uh, 
you know, for people that don't want kids, that's fine. That's a choice. I have no judgment on that. Uh, you know, the only thing that I can offer is that it makes me feel more complete. You know, it gives me purpose and grounding and, and direction that I don't think that I would have without kids. And, you know, it's weird. It's, it's like, uh, you know, if there's any kind of criticism from the book, it's like, you always get like a little bit of snark or whatever. It's like, oh, this guy is like so irresponsible with his kids. He just goes off and trains all day and like his poor wife and kids. And it's like, that's not what's going on at all. I mean, you've been around my family. You have a sense of like how we kind of function. Um, you know, there are times where I've put a lot of time into training, but never at the cost of my family and kids. And, and, you know, I would never sacrifice that for some midlife athletic goal. Uh, it requires work to be balanced in that regard. But, uh, but I think that it makes me a more present uh, partner and father for my kids. And that, because I mean, what you're hearing, what he's talking about, like the, the, the grounding and the focus and the direction that mm-hmm. being a father gives you. It sounds like uh, something that you, obviously something you can't access any other way. Well, I think that, you know, this sort of stereotypical fear reaction of having kids, like, oh my God, my life is going to be over and I'm mm-hmm. not going to be able to do all these things that I like to do. I mean, certainly, you know, trajectories change when you have kids. It's just by the very nature of there being another human being in, in your life, you know, that you're responsible for. Um, but, uh, my experience has not been that anything has ended, you know, it's really just been enriched. And I think, again, it goes back to, you know, like the things that I like to do before I still do and the things and your interests change things I used to be interested in doing or thought that I would miss. Mm. I don't miss anymore. And how is it? There's a lot of the times and, and I had the opportunity after, after I got divorced, I had the opportunity to, to live with a family, a friend of mm. mine, she uh, invited me to come and live with her house. And I lived in the, in the back house and they had two kids and I got the opportunity to interact with a family that wasn't mine and kind of be around, like, as you say, like a cool uncle or whatever, these kids were six and eight. And it redefined my relationship to motherhood because I'd never seen another family work. And I was like, all oh, right, it can, it can be this way because I'm one of four boys. Mum raised us alone from when I was 11. Mm-hmm. It was like Lord of the Flies in my house. Right. It was insane. Wow. It, was, it was awesome. Mum did a, a great job, man, but it was pretty. Just it was boys pretty, running crazy, it was beating on each other. It was, yeah, it was that. Yeah, we went through a lot of holes in the walls. Um, but, but a lot of people tend, and you see it often, people tend not to be able to, to, to break away from their, what they knew. It's like with eating. You know, they, this is what they learned about being in a family. So when they have their own kids- this is what they do and they just right. do it because their dad always did it. Did it mm-hmm. have you found yourself redefining your relationship with fatherhood and fathers being a father now? Yeah, definitely. And I th- I have to attribute Julie with a lot of that kind of um sort of program busting. You know, I come from I come from very loving parents who who took care of me and provided all of my needs and and you know, it was very kind of um, upwardly mobile suburban, not, not like wealthy, but like, you know, we didn't have to worry about it. Uh, you know, my parents were able to send me to, you know, a really nice high school and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, it was very conventional and, and basically conservative. 
And Julie's kind of like comes from a completely different life experience. Like she grew up, she's half Chilean. She grew up in Alaska. She's the youngest and just ran wild over these glaciers. As, you know, like she's got insane stories about when she's young. And she has this ability to kind of see things differently than most people. And she has the courage and the backbone to say, I know everybody's doing it this way, but I'm, I'm going to do it this way, you know? And if you don't think I, I can, then just watch me, you know? And she's very strong and powerful in that way. And that challenges me because I'm like, wait a minute, you know, that's not how people do this. And mm. we need to do it like this because I feel safe doing it this way. For so example, like the food choices we were talking exa- about before. Exactly. And this, so, so I guess the best example of this is we've made this decision to homeschool our kids, right? Which is a huge responsibility and one that, you know, not a day goes by where I don't go, am I doing the right thing? Is this in their best interest? Am I screwing them up? Or is this, and I watch like, you know, the kids develop and I see them um, achieving a, a level of maturity that I don't typically see in kids of their, that age. And I know I feel better and more secure about making this choice, but it is way out of my comfort zone. Julie is convinced that, you know, we're doing the best thing for them. Um, But because of my upbringing, it's like, I don't know, like, you know, I'm used to, you know, I wore a coat and tie to high school every day. So did I. Yeah, I went to that kind of high school. And so it's like, if if we're not doing that, then like, what are we doing over here? Like, this doesn't make sense to me. And it it makes me, but I think that you have to, you know, ask those hard questions and kind of challenge yourself to try new things if you want, quantum growth you know if you just want to if you want to be like everyone else and do what everyone else is it's it's sort of like you get out of things what you put into them right and great entrepreneurs you know people that have you know changed our world have been people who have asked those hard questions and have boldly sort of said i'm not going to do it that way i'm going to do it this way and maybe they've made enemies and made mistakes along the way but they've had the kind of backbone to do something different. And I see that in, in Julie and it, and it helps me look at my life and the, and the choices that I'm making in a different way. And hopefully, you know, empowers me to do different things. And, and, you know, I think everybody needs to, you know, kind of question authority or question the status quo. You know, when you watch the news at night, like, well, what is behind that? Like, why are they telling me this story and not this other story? You and discuss you know what this I mean? with your like, kids when you watch the news with your kids? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. My folks used to do that. My mom always did that as well. Um, so that leads me on to my next question uh, about, you know, you talk about having this, you just talked about having this, you know, this, this kind of reason for being with these kids in your life. And you introduce yourself often as a recovering attorney. Yeah. So a lot of people would think, "You what? You gave up being a lawyer? This uh, by society perceives it's like it's a bath tap that just drips water, right. drips money. Yeah. Sorry, I should say it's a, it's, a, it's a shower faucet that just just spurts out money when you're a lawyer. So you you've got four kids' mouths to feed yourself and your wife, mm-hmm. and you're like, don't want to be a lawyer anymore. That is a Colossal. That's like more in, intense than going. I'm going to go do five Ironmans in five days. Like mm-hmm. it's such an enormous, enormous leap to do. I so. think that when you want to do something uh, with your life, if you have kind of one foot in and one foot out, then it's not going to happen, or you are uh, not giving it your all, right? And uh, 
you know, I made a decision when the book came out uh, and started getting, you know, kind of the reaction that it was getting. I felt that I had a responsibility and it sounds weird, not like a calling, but like, you know, I, I felt compelled and I had the passion to try to take this message and um, spread it as best as I could. You know, I mean, the emails that I get from people, it's just, it's very moving. And I, and I feel a responsibility as um, like a career of the message to, to, you know, kind of seed that garden and, and help it grow. You know what I mean? I think people, uh, there's a need for it. And there's a sense of satisfaction that comes with participating in this dialogue that I don't get, you know, from practicing law. Um, and it's a hard, it, it was a hard wrought decision. Certainly I can go back to doing it, you know, should I need to, it's not like, it's not like I can't go back to being a lawyer. Um, but I made the decision to not try to do both because I wanted to commit myself to this completely. And it hasn't been, you know, a bed of roses. You know, it's like, we got a late start today because on my way back, uh, my car broke down. You know what I mean? And right now, like, quite honestly, like, I don't have enough money for a new transmission. And Julie just left to go call AAA and get it towed over to the gas station. You know, it's like, I'm watching every penny and, and, uh, we're making it work, but it's a warrior path, dude, you know? And it is, you know, I think, an outsider can look at it and go, oh, well, he, you know, good for him. You know, he wrote a book. He goes around and do all this. Must be nice. You know, it's like it is freaking hard. And, I, and I'm working my ass off, you know, harder than I ever did as a lawyer to try to figure out how to systematize this in a way that I, I'm still being responsible to my family because that comes first. And, the, and if that begins to suffer and I have to go back to practicing law, then I will do that. That's fine. You know, that's my obligation as a responsible, fiscally responsible parent. Um, but I'm really trying to give this a go. It seems that you've got this, this kind of skill set of the determination and, and, and uh, you know, ability to, as we talked about earlier, overcome the automatic negative thought that you can apply to either running up a mountain, cycling across a lava field, or going, you know what, I'm going to take this path. Mm-hmm. And would you say there that it's a, it's a similar it's it's endurance, but it's just you know it's using the same part of your brain. Oh just- yeah, and there's no yeah, there's no question about it. Like people have been asking me, well, what's your next race, or when are you going to race again? And I keep saying, well, I haven't signed up for anything, or I just haven't found the thing that inspires me. You know, the way that I was inspired to to challenge, you know, take on this Ultraman challenge. But I think the truth is, is that all of that kind of verve and and enthusiasm. And passion is really directed now towards this message. Mm. Like all of the energy that I put into training for Ultraman, like that that sort of super keen, you know, Compton Rom laser pointed at the cloud is like is now directed at things like doing the podcast and going out and speaking to people and meeting people and you know trying to help people improve their lives. Like that's that's my that's my ultraman even right though now. you even though you said you just uh, and you know and really thank you for being so um so candid about talking about you know where you are in 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 life at the moment you know there's somebody listening to this right now who's 
sitting in an office cubicle or working in a mobile phone store or something just goes, bah. Yeah. What would you say to them? That like they, they've got a dream of doing something else. <clears throat> and even though you've made, now you've made that leap and now you're, you know, the, the net is there. Right. But, you know. So we, so what are you saying? So my question so is, what would you say to, like, for example, for me, I'm, you know, I was in this point in Australia with my career and I'm like, you know right. what, I've got to go to America. That's, that's mm-hmm. the next move. That's where it's going to be. Yeah. And, and I committed and I'm here and the career momentum in Australia died down as it does. And I'm here and I'm working real hard to, 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 to make stuff happen over here, but I can't do it any other way. I can't have a foot in mm-hmm. both countries. No, you like, can't. Like, you, like you, you can't be to afraid to fail. So, but I've, you know, had the benefit of, you know, I put money in the bank. <laughs> right. Up, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, what would you say to someone who's listening to this right now going, yeah, I would change jobs or I would move my career or I would do that because. But I can't because of that. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. No, I get it. I mean, I think that, you know, when I, when I was, uh, you know, buckled over on the staircase and realized I needed to change my diet. Did, you know, did I have a flash that I would be sitting here with Andrew G doing a podcast <laughs> right now? He's like, you know, you can't predict the trajectory of your life because it is composed of tiny moments yeah. aggregated over time. So to somebody who feels stuck, um, you know, the way out is to just begin doing something, you know, whether it's, hey, go to the bookstore and buy The Artist's Way. And when you wake up in the morning, write three pages down. You know, that's a start. You know what I mean? That's actually a massive thing to do, a massive change, you know? And and over time, you start to string together tiny little seismic shifts like that. And you'll look back a year later, two years later, five years later, and your life will have taken on a completely different color and, and trajectory. And so on that point, on that path, the idea of deciding not to do Lord anymore was just another step on that path that was it, or was it, it was obviously a bigger step, but you didn't just wake up and go, that's it, I'm not going to do. No, no, no. I mean, I've been trying to find a way out of practicing law for a very long time, right. but I tried to do it with one foot in and one foot yeah. out. Like, hey, I'm just going to do a little bit or, you know, and then the phone would ring and I'd get sucked into doing some project because somebody was paying me. So a lot of it has been about creating a foundation that made it possible for me to generate income from other sources, which I spent a lot of time creating that foundation before I turned the faucet off on the law. And then also it's about healthy boundaries too, and learning how to say no, you know, for me, it's so if somebody wanted to offer me a gig, even if it was working for horrible people, you know, I would say yes, because my self-worth was, it might be the last gig anybody ever offers me and I'm lucky to get it. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. for me. So there's an esteem issue built into that. And as you start to develop greater self-esteem by doing esteemable acts, you have an opportunity to create healthier boundaries around yourself. And and a lot of times that involves learning how to say no to opportunities that might seem attractive in a short-term way, but aren't actually serving your longer-term vision for what you you want your life to be. Right? (laughs) Come on, dude. You know all this stuff. No, it's heavy though. It's it's good. It's good. It's good to hear. I mean, there's someone listening to this right now. That's but the listen, first time you know, I've heard that. I've had you know dark mo- moments of the soul. Like I didn't sleep very well last night. Right? I was up. I I was barely barely slept last night because you know I was like, oh my god, I got to do this, and I got to. How am I going to make ends meet with this thing and this other thing that I thought was going to work out? I just found out isn't working out. It's like it's not all roses, man. It's like you know I am like 
busting my butt and it's not always going, the brakes aren't always going my way. Like I've had a rough couple of days. So like I said, it's the warrior's path. You have to stay in the game. You know what I mean? And you have to be, you have to believe in yourself and you have to have faith in something outside of yourself that this path that you're on will lead you into a direction that is suited for you. But that only comes with doing the internal work. You know what I mean? You can't trust your instincts if you're not healthy on the inside, right? Because they, they're what are those signals that are leading you? Are they healthy signals or are they unhealthy signals? And and you know, your divining rod for making that determination better be well tuned. Sometimes the you know, we think we've got the best idea about how something should go and then we turn around and go like, well, this is the best that the best that I could do and has got me to this point which I'm not happy about. So we actually get to a point where we start listening to other people's ideas and then mm-hmm. trusting them and doing what they say. So I'm interested to know who are the people around you that you turn to when you're having that dark night of the soul. Who do you turn to for guidance? And who? Because people are listening to this going, here's this guy, Rich Roll, he did this, he eats this, he has this life, I want to be like him, so I'm going to take similar steps because mm-hmm. I want that in my life as well. But you're looking up as well. So who are you, who are you looking for? Yeah, uh, well... For sure, my for sure, Julie. You know, I mean, she's. I check in with her, you know, daily, if not hourly. Like I'm feeling down today. This is what happened, you know. And she helps me talk through everything. So again, it goes back to having that, you know, healthy communication in your relationship, where you know you feel safe talking about vulnerable things. Um, and then I have friends in recovery that I run my decisions by. You know what I mean? Like I try not to make big decisions in isolation. You know, I'll run it by, you know, trusted people, people that I trust their judgment, and then I'll evaluate the reaction. And it's usually a pretty good indication of whether I should or shouldn't do something. Um, But again, you still have to take responsibility for that decision. And sometimes, you know, when I, when I first was like, Hey, you know, I'm eating plant-based and I think I'm going to try this crazy Ultraman race. What do you think? You know, it was like, I didn't get an overwhelming, like slap on the back, like, go for it. We're proud of you. That's a, that sounds awesome. You know, the, the reaction was, yeah, I don't, that doesn't sound like a very grounded decision, Rich. Have you thought this through or like, how are you, you know, like, I don't know, you know, like, where's this coming from? You know, so that would have been an, that would, that was an example of where I actually said, you know, this time I'm going to trust my instinct because I feel I feel driven in this direction for some reason and it feels right to me. And even though people I trust are kind of saying, well, I'm not so sure, Rich, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do what feels right to me. But I would say overwhelmingly or the majority of the time when I run my decisions by my peers, um, you know, I end up listening to them, but it's, it's incumbent upon you to make sure that you recruit the proper board of advisors yeah, because otherwise you fall prey to, you know, the whimsical, you know, ideas or advice of somebody who, you know, is not guiding you in the right direction. Right? Yeah. Um, so you've, you've mentioned Julie quite a bit. She sounds like, and I, I don't know if this is such a thing, um, but what would you say to women who are listening or guys who would like to take this message to their wives or girlfriends or, or, or girls who would like to take this to their boyfriends or husbands? about the, the, the training widow, the, the, the partner yeah, that doesn't, yeah. doesn't see their partner because they're off on a uh-huh. six or eight hour. The triathlon widow, yeah. yeah. Yeah, What would you say to those people about what, you know, that training 
does for this person or you know to the person who's the widow yeah or the, the one sitting at home going I'd love to do something on my Saturday but he's or she's off right. riding up a mountain today yeah that's that's a tough one because it's, it's a it's a big deal it's a real know? it's a very real thing you know and I have friends on both sides of that equation um, I think it's I think it depends on the 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 specific dynamic of that relationship you know what I mean is there is their communication healthy or is it dysfunctional? You know, is it the kind of thing where the, the guy makes all the money and he says, screw you, I'm going to do what I want with my free time. And mm-hmm. you're going to, you're just, you're going to have to suck it up. Like, you know, or is it, you know, where there's more parity in the relationship and there's more o- open communication, you know, I think it depends, but, but, uh, you know, I think the person who's suffering needs to address the issue in a conscious way and in a non-threatening way saying, you know, cause I know what it feels. I love when I'm training, you know, like, but when I'm off training, I'm thinking, you know, what is the time that I'm missing with my kids? Like I need to balance this correctly. What else can I cut out of my life so that this isn't interfering and to be able to have that conversation with your partner and say, Hey, listen, you know, it would be really great if you could be around more, you know, is there another way or are there other hours that we could do this? You know, maybe, um, instead of having your rest day on Monday, why don't you have it on Sunday? You know, we can enjoy the kids or let's set aside a specific day or two days, or this is the night that we always go on our date, you know, and that's sacrosanct. And this is the day that you do things with the kids or every Tuesday, you know, you take your son to baseball or or whatever it is and you set appointments and you, um, you put some time and effort into organizing the schedule and work with the person as opposed to come at them and say, you know, why are you doing this? In, a, in an aggressive way. Yeah, right. Um, and I, I guess the other, the other question, I, uh, the other part of that I would like to you know, ask, and I know that back when I was still living with, um, when I was still living with my wife, it, the, the me and her before a run and after a run were two completely different things. Uh-huh. Like when I came back from a, if I'd run, if I had if I'd missed my run, oh, that was worse. If I'd missed my run, yeah, it's like it was not a good day. Yeah, for anyone. <laughs> yeah. You know? No, I say it all the time. Julie's like, "Would you please go running?" <laughs> you know? Like I'll just be, I'll just embark on some absurd line of argument with her, and she, she's just looking at me like, "Like, are you done yet?" Like, okay, leave now. You know, come back when you. And it's amazing the difference, isn't it? Oh yeah, man. I have to if I don't if I don't run, I just go. Do we? I just yeah. I've got to go. But I I I'm, I'm interested. Like you mentioned before, and I'm wondering if, if you want to cover it here or if this is going to be in the next book. Like what I'd be really interested in. I'll tell you what. Here's what I'd like you to put in the next book, please, Rich. Um, I'd like you to put in the running meditation technique that you mm-hmm. talked about and addressing that entire mental and psychological aspect of the endurance thing that you you spoke of right um you touched on it what we talked about but i'd love you for you to dive deep and kind of give that gift to people um because you can tell them what to eat you can tell them you know run this many intervals that many splits do this many cycles Mm -hmm. this many rest days but when you hit that wall here's how to think your way around it yeah you know that's that's what i'd love to i'd love to see from you good man i'm glad to hear that because that's Kind of, you know, the direction that I'm thinking. Oh, really? Bit. Well, I mean, I think because honestly, seeing where you run, seeing the mountains you run with, with you know, with the hawks and the, and the yeah, you should, we should give you a, a First Nation name, man. You really, <laughs> yeah. you really deserve, you know, 
I can understand why you would get into that kind of transcended space. Damn, or I run down on the Venice boardwalk. I don't quite know if I can. Yeah, get but into I go that down space. and run on the Venice. We talked about this. I go down and run on the Venice boardwalk sometimes for very specific reasons, you know, that are related to being on the trail with the hawk. Like I go down there so that I can run by all the people selling weed and the people in the bars and the drunks walking around and the kind of street urchin characters oh, that, my neighborhood. that I, I love. love. No, and I love it. And I used <laughs> to live down there. Right. Yeah. And, and I go down there to kind of check myself yeah. or, or get a read on my barometer. Like if I'm running through there and I'm like, Oh, that looks good. I could go into that bar at two in the afternoon right now. Well, then I go, all right, well, that's interesting. Like I, I probably need to dial up my program right now. Okay. Or I, or I do it as a gratitude check where I'm running through and I was like, I see somebody and I go, that guy looks exactly like what I used to look like. I can tell, I can see it a mile away. And it makes me feel like it, it makes me check in and, and get and, and emotionally tap into like, the distance traveled, you know, mm. because I, I have, you know, sometimes I forget like, oh yeah, you know, a couple, if a couple things have been different, like I could be that guy in that bar, you know, and I'm not, and I forget that. Mm. And so that's to me just as powerful as being alone on a trail. You know, it's, it's like they say, uh, um, it's easy to be spiritual if you're, you know, a Tibetan monk sitting in a cave right? It's a lot harder to be spiritual in the world, you know, with the stimuli and real life challenges and all of that. And so, you know, you got to, you got to take that with you wherever you go and vary that experience. So if you could write about how to get into that, that running meditation, that would be good. If you could write about how to get vegetables into children, I think people <laughs> yeah. would be very, the way you describe that, I found that really, really good. And the way, the mindset mm-hmm. that you put around and involving them in, in that choice because, like, even just getting veggies into kids is a huge, huge right? Particularly yeah. when every time they turn on the television, it's like, eat this, it's covered in cheese and sugar, right? And mm-hmm. salt, um, yeah, that'd, that'd be really good for uh, for book two, which is how far away? <laughs> <laughs> it's a little ways away. Well, you know, it's oh, yeah, interesting, also, and, and some awesome thing about being about fatherhood. Put something else yeah. in there about because you've got. I think you've got a lot to share with a lot of men. Like we talked about this on the trail the other day, the role of men in society. It is you're not Don Draper. You don't come home. Go to you know. There's a triple finger scotch waiting for you on the desk. Um, you read the paper. That could be good though. Yeah, you, you get handed the paper. You get left alone for 20 minutes. Dinner's hot on the table, um, and you fall asleep in front of the TV before Carson comes on. Like that is mm-hmm. gone. Right. All right. And I see my I see my elder bro- my eldest brother um, kind of struggle with it. My he's he's older than me, and he's just got twin boys, and he's like, well, what do I? I'm 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 supposed to go out and, and earn money, yet I'm also supposed to share this responsibility of changing all these diapers, nappies we call them in my country, right? Uh, and preparing all these bottles, yet now I can't sleep because I'm up at three in the morning, I've got a client briefing at nine. Blah. Yeah, there's a confusion of the gender roles. Yeah, like yeah. We, it's, it's, it causes vertigo for a man. Like what are we supposed to do? Are yeah. we supposed to be the guy who's opening up the door and paying the check? Or are we, we supposed to be the metrosexual guy yeah. who's getting the chest waxed? And, you know, it's like what, do you, what is- you know hair, what I mean? Did you know that? Yeah, <laughs> know, really yeah. blonde hair. But I think- uh, yeah, there's a lot to mine there. I mean, I've been thinking like, you know, it's funny. Um, uh, somebody, I think it was my editor said to me, I was like, oh, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. You know, what what the next book is going to be. 
And he said, well, most authors only have one book in them. And I was like, that's great. Thank you for that. No, man, but- <laughs> And I go, and I thought about that and I was like, cause for a while I was like, well, what do I want to express? And I go, maybe I've already done it. You know, maybe that, maybe I don't have an, another book, but then I've been thinking about it. It's like, I, I told my story. I'm not telling my story again, but I think, you know, I look at all these diet books or sort of, you know, um, motivational books or what have you. Well, specifically the diet books. And generally they lay out a diet plan and then they're like, there you go. Mm-hmm. Here's all the reasons why you should do it. And here's how you do it. Good luck. Have a nice life. And for me, that is, that's great. And that's important, but that's sort of a cliffhanger. You know, it's sort of, well, all right, well now what, you know what I mean? It's and because my perspective is always that wellness or health is, should be perceived in a more holistic way where, where food and diet is certainly, you know, a huge critical factor in it. But, but if you're mentally and spiritually unfit or out of balance, then, you know, you can eat kale all day long, but you could be a raving lunatic, right? Or your life can be completely out of whack. So how do we approach these other aspects? Or once you clean up your diet, you know, how do you channel that energy? Like we were talking about before to be, you know, more fully expressed, grounded and happy in your mm-hmm. life. And, and you have to kind of look at these other aspects and address them, whether it's, you know, fatherhood or, you know, this sort of meditation, meditative, you know, spiritual aspect of, you know, what you're doing in your life, whether you're an athlete or a business person or whatever it is and kind of getting into that. And I think that's where, like, you know, I think I'm, I was glad to hear you say that because I think I, you know, I do have something to offer to that discussion, you know, sort of, it was like, well, I'm going to write another plant-based diet book. You know, my beef with meat just came out. It's number 10 on Amazon. It's like, what am I going to offer to that conversation that hasn't already been articulated? Like not much, you know, I can reiterate it, mm. but I'm not interested in writing a book. That's just, you know, just that, unless I'm bringing something new or interesting to the equation. So anyway, that's where I'm thinking. I have some ideas, but it's gestating. You've got a lot to, uh, you got a lot to offer a lot of people, man. And um, thank you. Well, you do, and you've you've you certainly you're, you're talking from your own experience, and you, you keep saying it in my in my experience. In your experience, it's it's you know you live like no one I've ever seen. You have a really interesting life. You've, your your youngest daughter addresses me as an equal. <laughs> yeah. How old is she? Five. Yeah. And it, I guess it reminds me of because my parents did the same thing. My parents mm-hmm. never talked to us in baby talk, and they always from when we were the youngest people, we would freak freak grown ups out. By calling them by their first names and you know asking them about their right. day one on one, and uh, it's awesome, man. And you have a you got a lot to offer people. So I think you got more than one book in you. I hope so. Um, Let's see, I don't think there's anything else I wanted to chat to you about. Yeah, dude, you feel, we, you feel we, happy? Do you we, feel like we made it to the two hour mark, dude? Oh, really? Yeah. Do you feel like we covered everything? Is there anything else you want, dude? To this has been awesome. Are you kidding? This really? is yeah, really great, man. Are I you appreciate sure? you doing this. Okay, it is really now. Don't get me. I wrong. I can see why they pay you the big bucks. Well, this kind of thing. It. It's not often that I get to chat to someone for such a long time. It's sometimes three minutes, sometimes right. four, sometimes 10, rarely 20. So to get to chat to someone for two hours, two hours it's, man. It, it's, 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 it's weird because I'm used to sprints. Yeah. You know, so yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it does feel a little strange. This is the Ultraman of. Uh, <laughs> um, but like I said, man, I'm really, I'm really grateful to, to have been a part of, of this and, and your journey and this experience. No, man, it's good. I, well, we're gonna have to flip the switch, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna interview you next time. Oh, give me give me a couple of months. Let me conquer that mountain up the road. Right. Well, we'll get out and we'll do it. once you're once you're in the thick of the uh, 
the bulldog training. The ultra. Yeah. It. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Osher's committed to running the bulldog 50K, which is a local 50 kilometer trail running race that is conducted in Malibu Creek State Park here in August. Um, and it's very challenging course. There's a lot of vertical. 8,000 feet. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are times on that, on that, on that trail where you feel like getting down on all fours and it's kind of like bouldering. So it's going to be awesome, dude. You're going to do great. I'm looking forward to it. Hey, thanks again, man. This is great. Yeah. Thank you, man. I appreciate you doing it. Peace. Plants. Yeah.